0: everybody welcome to another comic boom comic source collaboration it's your dc spotlight for the week of september 26 2023 man is this year flying by huge week of dc comics some might say too many books uh
1: yeah it feels that way when when you're like us and we we, when we read and review every single comic that comes out yeah it certainly feels like a lot yeah, when I would say some
0: would say I, I'm some I'm some of those some and, and Rocky and I were talking before we started recording. I, I feel a little bit hypocritical, you know. I I uh, campaigned for more anthologies, DCD to put out more anthologies gives a chance for you know up and coming creators to, to uh, you know to show what they can do. Gives a chance to get some B, C, D all the way down to Z list characters a chance to show up now and then. And DC's doing that. They've done that a lot over the past couple of years. Uh, And so I feel a little hypocritical saying, oh, my God, too many anthologies. The problem is when I was campaigning for those anthologies, I was campaigning for them as a replacement for so many monthly titles. And it's like we're getting the anthologies on top of the monthly titles, on top of which we even have initiatives like We Are Legends, which I don't begrudge having more Asian characters. And my favorite DC title, you know, in recent memory, The Vigil, is part of We Are Legends. But it's a lot. It's a lot of books. There are too many – I was going through and I was putting together my reading list for 2023, all the stuff that I've read in anticipation of, you know, end of the year awards and all that. Um, And I'm just struck by the fact that I can't even, there are things on my read list that I haven't actually gotten a chance to read yet. A lot of things actually, because there are so many good comics, but that's the problem. There's too much stuff on it. There's too many comics. It's not just DC. It's Marvel. It's independent. It's, the market is uh, being artificially propped up by variant covers, as we all know, and, and that's not the uh, – I'm going to get off my soapbox because that's, that's not the point of this episode. But when that goes away, the market's going to be in for a big correction, uh, a, you a know, big regression um, because without those variant covers artificially propping things up, you're going to have less retailers um, and you're going to just have less books. The, it's just there's not enough money coming in to support that. There's number of titles that are coming out right now. So,
1: yeah. Uh, but in terms of quality,
0: I thought overall, it was, it was an okay week um, for this much stuff. You know, you really hope to have some home runs and I didn't feel like there was anything that was a home run, but
1: what do you yeah. think, Brock? Well, I think that uh, with, uh, with Night Tears taking the two month break there, we, you'd, you'd mentioned that before we, uh, before we started the, the podcast and it, it, it just, it did take away some momentum and, and even this this week uh with with this this week we got the premiere of uh, we got the premiere issues of uh, power girl and flash uh, which you know it's you know i mean that that's great i guess on the other hand they're both sort of robbing each other of um of potential uh hype i i suppose but you know it, it, and anyways i think they're both well we'll talk about the titles i think they're both maybe both a little bit, um, maybe mediocre, hit and miss. But uh, there's some. Um, there, there's so much coming out this week that it's uh, it gets a you know, Green Arrow's back. It, Green Arrow almost feels like a fresh issue to me because we fu- it's back with this coming back from Night Terrors. This this week feels a little bit overwhelming to me, and uh, everything Green Arrow, Action Comics, Flash, Power Girl, Penguin. There's some really great issues here, uh, or at least uh, even if you don't like the issues, they're they're bigger hyped stories in any event. People are looking forward to them. And, um, well, no buts. You know, shame on me for being a little bit cynical. I I actually probably am more on the optimistic side. And uh, we'll get into it. But uh, I thought, you know, despite being a little bit overwhelmed, there are some good comics here, but as you say there there's so damn many comic books they just get lost in the shuffle i feel that way and i i stopped reading marvel a a, a while back uh well more than a year ago so and i still feel overwhelmed but let's get into it yeah first up harley quinn
0: number 32 uh well i did have the what is going on there we go uh tinny howard on script sweeney boo art and colors, steve wands on the letters. Uh, I, um, let me talk about the art first off. Um, the art's gorgeous. I think Sweeney boo does a fantastic job as the artist on this series. Um, I know that maybe her style of art isn't for everybody, but for me, it it really works. That being said, I don't know how well this Harley title is working for the majority of, of Harley fans. (laughs) Uh, I, as, you guys know if you listen to the podcast for a long period of time, I'm not the biggest Harley fan in the world. Um, But so for that, I'm I'm not that invested in, in kind of the way Harley is or the status quo what's been going on, all the stuff Jimmy Amanda did, the Beaver, Coney Island, her um, red tool and all the other, you know, kind of crazy supporting characters that she's had. So for Tinny Howard to take her and give her some, superpowers some some multiversal powers of some sort she doesn't even know how they work she can't really control them or access them it doesn't bother me it doesn't bother me at all because i'm not like this big you know harley fan and uh, you know happy with the status quo and what have you i I don't really feel any kind of ownership over harley the way i might you know feel be a little more inclined on some other heroes that i've been reading longer and i enjoy more but i could see how if somebody's a long time harley fan they don't like this right like no don't give harley superpowers Don't. Do this, don't do that. Because um, some of these things that Tinny's doing are huge. Like the fact that she's changed Lou and Bud to the fact that they're like aliens or extra dimensional creatures or something. And like they're super intelligent and, you know, advanced to be a species or whatever. Like that's a big deal if you're an old school Harley fan and you just like the old school hyena Lou and Bud sort of stuff. So I could see how it could rub some people the wrong way. But for me, it's, it's fun – uh, I don't take it too seriously. I like that you know, Brother Eye shows up. I like that Lady Quirk shows. Up. Like these aren't characters that I you normally would associate with Harley Quinn. Like they're Lady Quirk, you know, like big part of Crisis on Infinite Earths back in the day, and certainly a, a you know a powerful character. So it's such an interesting juxtaposition to take Harley and and make her like this multiversal character. Usually, you think of multiversal characters, you think of like the Flash, right? Or Rip Hunter, Time Master, or, you know Booster Gold, some characters like that that have these you know really powerful abilities. You don't necessarily put Harley in there, but you know she reached through the multiverse, she pulled out this Vorpal Fish, and chaos has ensued. So in this issue, Lady Quark's trying to figure out how and what Harley is actually capable of, um, and you know all along she's been threatening Harley. Hey. If, if you don't stop messing with the multiverse, I'm going to destroy you. I'm, I'm going to have to kill you. It, it, you know, you're too much of a threat to the multiverse. And in this issue, she's kind of flipping it and she's saying, no, we need to figure out how you have these abilities and what abilities you have. And Harley's like, yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, let's do that. Uh, but then it sort of goes sideways on him. Uh, at the end, Lady Quark, again, she kind of uh, gets a little mean again, uh, turns a little villainous once again, if you will. Uh, And she says, well, if we can't figure it out, I am going to have to kill you. Just, just a reminder. (laughs) I am going to have to destroy you. Um, So that, you know, that is kind of, kind of interesting. The other thing that I I really enjoyed about it, you know, talking about the fun and zaniness of it, the issue is called finals crisis, not final crisis or, you know, the final crisis, whatever. But, you know, we know Harley was sentenced uh, to community service to teach this community college class. Um, And she's it's time for finals at the community college and, and, and with all the other stuff she's has going on and she's been neglecting her students, she feels like a little bit. And, you know, they've, her students have been threatened uh, by two face and all this other stuff. And so, yeah, they're, they're kind of a finals crisis. And when lady Quark comes and takes Harley, she brings the students as well. And they're supposedly they're safe on this war world of, of, uh, lady Quark, while lady quirk and Harley Quinn go off into the bleed. Um, and Lady Quirks like they'll be fine here they'll be safe and you know Harley makes some allusion to uh, she's like whenever uh, Lady Quirk says yeah they'll be fine they'll be safe here whatever they can imagine you know they'll be able to have uh, you know have people that'll take care of them kind of grant their wishes if you will and Harley's like are you sure that's a good idea these are community college students after all so you know there there is some tongue in cheek humor it is fun i am enjoying it but again I, I can understand why maybe some people wouldn't why why it might rub them the wrong way but Uh, there's, there's enough humor here and there's enough fresh ideas that it's working for me. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still Harley Quinn. So do I feel like I need to read it? No. Do I feel like if anybody's a big Harley fan, they're missing anything with this era of Harley? Nah, probably not. Um, but the Sweeney Boo art does suit the tone of the story very well. And, uh, yeah, I kind of like the voice that, um, that Tinny Howard is giving to Harley. And then as far as the backup story, uh, it's written by Sam Mags, art by Kelly Jones, Joe Villarubia does the colors, Hassan El Howe does the letters. And it's, you know, another one is Harley's having a dream. And because it's getting close to Halloween, it's a, a dream of Harley becoming a vampire. She's bitten by a Jokerized vampire or a vampirized Joker. Like it's Joker, but Joker as Nosferatu. Harley gets bit. By the joker and she in turn bites uh ivy and they all become immortals and they're gonna live happy ever after whatever it, it didn't do much for me the kelly jones art i didn't think it was particularly special i could really do without these backups and, and you know charge a dollar less they're, they're really not interesting uh, so anyway any thoughts on the issue rec
1: uh not really uh you, you kind of said it all i just this isn't a, i'm not really into this harley quinn this particular iteration of harley quinn i i it's like it's just on my cup of tea. I I, I appreciate what Teeny Howard's doing. Sweeney Boo, uh I've said before I, I was uh lucky enough to meet her and to get her autograph on some uh, animated Captain Marvel comics in uh in New York Comic Con in two thousand nineteen. She's a wonderful uh young woman, very talented. Her her style absolutely suits the character. I'm just not into this story. I you know, frankly, I don't think Harley Quinn's been written right. In any DC comic at the present moment, if I'm being brutally honest, and uh, she's, I. Uh... I like the black label versions of Harley. Bring back Cami Garcia and give me that Harley Quinn. That's more. Yeah. That's more my my uh, up my alley, so to speak. And the the irony is that Cami Garcia is actually doing the young adult line for for a lot of the young adult comics for young adult line for DC Comics, and yet she also did a black label Harley Quinn, which I thought was kind of ironic. But in any event, it's, you know, again, not a bad issue. Uh, I, I just don't see Harley Quinn as being a threat to the multiverse. She's more of the comedic relief and uh, to try to bestow some type of i don't know believability to me on that for her it just doesn't fit the tone of the mainstream bc universe in my mind it should be it it should just be in its own universe this is just a a a wonky harley that just doesn't it just doesn't work for me but uh you know but hey nothing taking nothing away from the story or the artist itself just not my cup of tea
0: yeah it is very this is a very different version of harley and you think about harley like i think about her um when the new 52 started, you know, when they changed your costume and it was kind of more adult. um, It took inspiration from the Gotham Knights video game, I guess. Uh, You know, you think about that suicide squad cover and what have you, you know, so dark and so adult. And this is so far from that. Um, So I don't know, maybe, maybe DC is purposely wanting a more kid-friendly Harley, sell a few more dolls and what have you, who knows? So anyway, let's move on. Uh, Up next, detective comics, Um, Out of Hell Part 1 from writer Rom V. Dustin Nguyen handles the pencils. John Kalis on colors. Ariana Mayer on letters. Really interesting to see Dustin Nguyen on pencils. Um, I haven't seen him do pencils on a book since since I can remember. He's been doing a lot of uh, watercolor stuff, mostly, is what he, he does now. Whether that's working on some Robin stuff with Jeff Lemire or working on his Little Monsters story or descender ascender with jeff lemire what have you so to see him do pencils uh yeah this was it was interesting um as far as what's going on it took me a minute um you know as rocky mentioned the the night terrors thing that was going on and so it looks like uh we saw last time batman uh, bruce wayne sort of possessed by something he's traveling around the city attacking things blowing things up uh clearly possessed by something he's flashing back having memories of talking to his father um Going back and attacking uh, places and and things, whether it's um, an old candy shop where he used to get candy when he was a little kid, his dad used to take him there, or uh, burning what's left of Hallie Circus to the ground. Uh, and there's a few di- different members of Gotham uh, PD that are after him, that are trying to save him from himself, so to speak. Um, but yeah, we're we're continuing this um, this sort of gothic gotham story and it's so interesting i'm really not enjoying this that much um it's a fine story i feel like it's so nuanced and it's so insular and it's so sort of stylized and so kind of out of touch with everything else that's going on like this doesn't tie in with gotham war at all so where does this fit with gotham or whatever I say all that to say, I feel like Rom V's take on Batman in this detective comics, it should have been like in its own, like maybe even black label title, like on its own and not in the regular detective comics book, because it's so, it's so different in tone and feel. And it, it's so sort of complicated and what have you. And it it feels decompressed as well. I really feel like we should be farther along in the story. I still don't feel like I have a big, idea uh, overall idea of what's going on other than this family the orgums who apparently as we've seen have uh roots in the very beginnings of gotham they've come back for reasons because they deserve gotham city because they were there at the beginning what have you and they're trying to exercise their power so that feels like that's what's going on and there's supernatural things involved as well with what their powers are and abilities and and that's it i i've just told you the whole story and, and and we're like two years into this and i just summed it up like in that, that's like four or five issues, maybe six issues worth of stuff, but it's been so stretched out. Um, so, it's so interesting to me, right. Because I'm absolutely love what Romby's d- doing in the vigil. Um, and I, you know, I've loved other things he's done. It's Swamp thing run and what have you. Some of his, um, certainly some of his, yeah. Swamp Swamp Swamp. Swamp. Yeah. But also a lot of his independent work, uh, a lot of his creator on stuff. I've, I've really enjoyed many deaths of so, so, Layla
1: to be, star, I think maybe. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, She's done some fantastic things. Um, This just, I don't know. It's just, and I'm not saying it's bad, but I just feel like we, can we get to the point already? Like, it feels like it's just dragging forever. I'm ready. And the problem is it's the same tone and feel. It's so dark and dreary. Um, It just ends up feeling like a chore to read. Uh, So to have it go on this long, it's just, it's kind of tough. So. Uh, and I'll I have a couple things to say about the backup, uh, but I'll let you give your thoughts on the main story. Yeah, well, I, the,
1: of all the comic books, I mean, all the comic books suffered from uh, night terrors. This one absolutely did because uh, I had to go back and reread it. Even. Catch on what the hell was going on here? I I completely forgot about the Asmir, and about Batman has glowing green eyes in this issue. and I thought what, and then I remembered. Oh yes, I had to go back and reread. Batman in this issue is possessed by the Asmir because that's how the last arc ended with Batman being possessed by the Asmir. The Asmir are is sort of like the supernatural force that that the Orgums kind control, and they're using the Asmir to control the, the some of the citizens of of the, the lower classes of Gotham, and they're trying to give Gotham sentience and and try to they're trying to control the city and Batman is now in control of the uh, is possessed by the Asmir. what what Ramvi does in this issue is he has he introduces we've seen Barbados and but now Barbados who has always been <laughs> and this is where it kind of gets confusing if you've been reading all the Batman titles Barbados has always possessed. Has always been sort of like the demon, the demon Batman in the recesses of Batman's mind. Okay? That's separate from the Batman of Zurinah, which is over in Batman. Now we also have Barbados in this issue, who wants to try to help Batman eliminate the Asmir from the Asmir is trying to take over Batman's mind. Well, we got Barbados, who always wants, uh, uh, Bat, Barbados always wants to devour all of, uh, Batman's memories. That's what Barbados does, and uh, and and we we were introduced with Barbados going into uh, to the original metal, and uh, actually, sorry, Barbados was introduced by Grant Morrison, and that was built upon going into metal by Scott Snyder and Barbados likes to torment Batman, but Barbados, I I get the impression he doesn't like competition and Barbados will help Bruce Wayne stave off the effects and the influence of the Azmir by having, by reminding, Barbados reminds Batman to uh, think of powerful settings in the city like Crime Alley to help push out the power of the Azmir. So that's, Batman ends up in in crime alley in, in in this issue meanwhile there's this new agent fielding who's got a history with batman uh, and this agent fielding is looking for batman as batman is sort of like wandering all over the city and and commissioner Montero, montoya is uh, concerned about where he's going and anyways that's really what what's sort of happening here gotham can save batman from the asmir by the memories that 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 gotham has in batman's mind and that that's the central gist of this issue but it is um I I thought unnecessarily dark and confusing, but I guess it fits the tone in the narrative of what came prior to Night Terrors. Um, But in many ways, this is more Night Terror-like than Night Terrors was. (laughs) This (laughs) this is a true Night Terror. This is a true nightmare. I mean, the nightmare that Batman had in Night Terrors was a joke compared to what Ram V is putting him through. And for frankly, for that matter, what Gothamore is putting him through, uh, considering how his entire family has betrayed him. But that's my spin on that, but... uh, anyway yeah, it's, but... yeah, it's not a bad the thing is it's not a bad story it's not a bad ideas as much
0: as you know I, I dislike it when oh let's go back to the very beginning and add another thing to the history of Gotham or to the you know kind of like the court of owls oh, wait they operated for years and Batman never knew like I get it you you want you're a storyteller and you want to tell a cool story and oftentimes you got to go back and retcon things and I'm not always a big fan of that because just feels like god there was all you know go, go back and look at the destruction of Krypton and how much stuff they've added into that it just becomes so convoluted like all that stuff couldn't have been going on and and nobody knew about it. So these aren't bad ideas, even though it's a little bit cliche, what Rom V is doing, having these organs be part of the origins of Gotham city. So they're not bad ideas other than, you know, maybe it's not all, you know, totally original or fresh. The problem is it's so decompressed. It's taking so long. That's the biggest. And it's so, like you said, so bleak and so dreary. Um, There is a backup. It's the 10 eyed man. Uh, written by Dan waters who's done all the ten-eyed man stories uh, that we've had recently the past couple of years Hayden Sherman is the artist Triana Farrell on colors Steve Wands on letters um, I don't know when the 10-eyed man became this like really this character that's so tied into supernatural and and what have you uh, it definitely if you liked the previous ten-eyed man stories that um, that uh, Dan waters did what was it uh, arkham City or what have you um, you're going to like this. Uh, if you didn't like that, you're not going to like this because it's very much in, it, it's very much in that same tone and same feel. And I, it's not that it's a bad story and the art by Hayden Sherman certainly suits the tone of the story that Danwater is telling. What's not clear is what the point of this is. Why Why are we being reminded that the Ten-Eyed Man is in Gotham? Like, it, I, I didn't really see a point to
1: this story. Yeah, no, I than, I, 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 I agree with you. Charge an extra dollar yeah
0: right? other than charge an
1: extra yeah i mean I, 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 the, the only the only link to the main story is that the, the ten-eyed man through his ten eyes somehow manages to uh feel he feels that the city of gotham is that is, is undergoing a trepanation which is essentially a brain uh, a brain surgery and that a Essentially, uh, the, the equivalent of a brain brain surgery is being performed from Gotham, a drill in the head to release demons. So if you think of Gotham's having sentience inside a head, and if you think of the subways of Gotham forming, again, sort of like a human head, uh, a drill is in the head of Gotham that's releasing all these demons, which is kind of what the Orgham's plan actually kind of is, sort of in a, ph- in a metaphysical kind of way. And somehow the Ten-Eyed Man can sense this, and then inexplicably at the end, the Ted-Eyed Man literally disappears. He's, he's, in, he's in front of Rene Montoya. She, he's talking to Rene Montoya. He, he touches Rene Montoya's uh, body to give her a sense of what he is feeling about something strange happening in Gotham. And then he literally disappears and there's no explanation as to how he disappears. The police officer says he just disappeared. No explanation as to why uh, in the writing or in the art and i just again uh you know i love dan waters uh, night terror story with batman issue number 2 i think it's one of the arguably one of the best batman stories i've read, i've read in years i really liked it but this is one where dan waters again you know with these backups uh, has just left me sort of you know scratching my head i'm i'm not clear exactly what what went on but um yeah it's uh it, it definitely pads the issue unnecessarily to add to the price point which is isn't a good thing yeah
0: i i didn't care for it either i will say though they did give an explanation of how he disappeared it just didn't make any sense right like you mentioned that uh the trepanations which you called it brain surgery let's be clear here so this was you know what they did back in like the 1800s people would have chronic headaches or whatever and they thought it was because of pressure in the skull and they'd use a hammer and a chisel and they'd go in and they'd like put a hole in somebody's head to re- release the pressure, or whatever, <laughs> scoop out some of their brains. I mean, we're talking really at the beginning of medicine type stuff. And yeah, that's, so that's what the, uh, the 10 eyed man is sensing that, you know, he puts his, one of his fingers to somebody's head and he's like, Hey, memories are missing. People have a hole in their memories, a hole in their brain. He does that to Renee Montoya and he goes, ah, there, there it is. I look inside your head and there's the hole and it's growing uh, and supposedly he then climbs through the hole, like Renee Montoya said that, uh, because no. <laughs> the cop says he was just standing there a second ago. Now he's gone. I didn't even blink. And she goes, he climbed through the hole. I felt it. The 10 eyed hey. man climbed through the hole in the world, which he sensed in her head, the hole in Gotham city. <laughs> where, like, is that, yeah, that's is So that? they do explain it. It just doesn't make any goddamn sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. Wait, what I, I, He crawled through the hole in her head. I mean, she didn't literally have a hole. She has a hole from whatever's being removed from kind of the collective memory of Gotham City. Like, Yeah, it, I'm going to stop right there because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but a lot of what Dan Waters has been doing with the Ten-Eyed Man has been very esoteric in the first place. So kind of take it with a grain of salt anyway. Um. Yeah, I, I, the thing is, that I thought the Ten-Eyed Man, before they've made him this weird, out-there, insane character, was kind of a, a fun, interesting character, kind of like a Kite Man character, right? Like, you hear, oh, a Ten-Eyed Man, the guy's got an eye on every finger. That's sort of crazy and kooky, and now they've made him, like, this weird, scary horror character. It's I don't know. It doesn't work for me. Anyway, uh, moving on, we have Green Arrow number four. Uh, written by Joshua Williamson, art and cover by Sean Isaacs, uh, colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr., letters by Troy Petrie. Um, here's another one. I think that really suffered from the uh, the break with Night Terrors because I I feel like b- because of the way that it's structured with the mystery that Joshua Williamson built in, all the different memories of the Green Arrow family are are thrown across. Different dimensions, different parts of the multiverse, different time periods. And every time they try to remember things or come together, some force is pulling them apart. Very mysterious. We're not exactly sure what's going on. Um, and so it, 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 it's very much like a mystery. And then you get a two and a half month break. And you're trying to, like, it hasn't even really gotten going. The story hasn't even really gotten going. And then you get this big break. So we saw at the end of issue three, many months ago, that. Uh, Hal Jordan showed up, but Par- Parallax Hal Jordan showed up. And so he's confronting Oliver Queen and are talking about their past history and Queen saying, I know you're not really Hal. and um, Cause you know, th- this is in Hal's past and what have you. So they end up getting in a fist fight. It's very Oliver Queen. I will give Williamson credit for that. It's very Oliver Queen to say, Hey, you know, no bows, no arrows, no power rings. We're just going to get into a fist fight. And sure enough, um, during that fight, Oliver Queen basically gets the upper hand and, and forces this being, whoever he is, to show that he's not actually Hal Jordan, and he leaves him stranded wherever this this entity took um, took Oliver Queen to fight. Like it looks like ruins uh, of of Earth or whatever, and he's saying, "This, you know, if you if you get together with your rest of your Green Arrow family, this is what the future holds for Earth and what have you." And then at the end. Oliver Queen is there and uh, this old, what looks to be like an old Oliver Queen, bald, blind in one eye, almost looks like an old man Hawkeye, uh, basically confronts Oliver Queen. So maybe he's going to explain everything. I feel like all along we've gotten these characters that are supposedly going to show up here or there and kind of explain what's going on. Because again, we still don't know what the hell's going on, which is why that two and a half month break is so irritating. The other thing that happens in the story is Roy Harper, along with Black Canary, is trying to get some answers uh, of where Oliver is, where his daughter Leanne is and what have you. So you've got that part of it going on um, as well. So it's an interesting enough story. It does feel like it's a little slow in the pacing, like for four issues in feel like we should be a little further along than we are. And we should have a few more answers, but that again might be a byproduct of such a long layoff. So uh, I do love the art. I do love the colors. Um, very very good storytelling, narratively, uh, visually rather from um, from Sean Isaacs, and like, the colors really pop off the page, and the action scenes are handled really really well. So I am enjoying this uh I just I'm ready to be a little further along so yeah. what are your thoughts on it rock
1: uh well my favorite part of the issue is when uh, Roy Harper and Black Canary when they 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 go into a bar and they're following a the lead and uh, they end up their Roy Harper is there for a specific purpose to call somebody out and that of course ends up being revealed to be Cheshire the his his uh former lover and mother to Lian and it make it. I. It's about bloody time. I was wondering. I because I thought, good lord, you're not going to actually have the uh, the Green Arrow family. Suddenly, there's a Green Arrow family. Now you're going to have a Green Arrow family. Look for. Most of them are looking for Leon, and you're not going to have Cheshire in the story. Come on. Well, thank you, Jim uh, Joshua Williamson, for bringing us Cheshire back. Cheshire is a villain. She's a kill. She's a killer, and she's the she is the mother of Leon and. She is exactly the type of drama <laughs> that you want introduced into this story. And so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, my personal wish, which will probably never happen, but I would love it. I would love to see a Roy Harper, Cheshire, and Leon mini series you know how's that for a family you know <laughs> honey, I'm home what did you what did you cook well Cheshire's known for being very good with poisons, you know, so you wouldn't want her to be your wife cooking your supper every day, but in any event i i, I don't imagine there's there's going to be any uh, domestic um uh, domestic bliss in Roy Harper and Cheshire's future, but uh, they're a wonderful dysfunctional uh, set of parents for Leon and I'm glad that Cheshire's been introduced to the story in the way she was. This has been very slow going, uh, another comic that obviously suffered uh, tremendously from, uh, from uh, night terrors, but we're, we're back on track. Williamson is putting all the pieces in place. He's he's getting these characters down. These characters are familiar. He's doing a good job with the characterizations. It's a little slow going, but this is going to read good as a as as a six issues. I can't believe it's only six issues long, but I, I think this is this will be a good read as a trade and it'll get people on board uh, and I, I hope it continues I hope it's I hope its sales are good enough I think they will be uh, beyond the sixth issue because I this really should continue on as a series because I'm already liking it and I full bias I love Cheshire and I, I hope that she stays uh, as a dysfunctional member of this Green Arrow family team because every family needs a black sheep and she's like the she's like the crazy ant that's Cheshire you know she, you got to have an ant that's a supervillain not I, that, that just adds to it so well so yeah i didn't mind the issue because i heard
0: <laughs> yeah it is interesting a lot of the the series that williamson's doing right now with dc are all like limited and again you wonder i talked about this before or maybe i talked about it online um but the fact that williamson's doing a uh, gi joe stuff over at skybound i guarantee skybound pays more than dc does and you know you gotta have a little more freedom working with robert kirkman than you do these dc warner brothers discovery and what have you plus the other thing is like williamson he's been at dc and not just at dc for a while now but he's been the guy at dc right like it's almost like when you love something like if you eat just if you binge it right if you just eat a ton of like chocolate ice cream and eat nothing but chocolate ice cream for dessert for like two <laughs> years you're you get kind of sick of chocolate ice cream you want to take a break you know so there's every possibility. And I, again, I don't know anything. I haven't talked to Josh. Maybe he's the reason these are all coming to an end. Like it's Batman, and Robin, this, uh, what have you? The rumors of him being done with Superman are all because he's, you know, going to concentrate on his crater own stuff and then the GI Joe stuff. Because um, he can't write everything, you know. And maybe he's just ready for a break from DC. I, again, I, I have no insider knowledge. Uh, just kind of feels like it, we could be headed that direction. Uh, All right, on to the next uh, limited series. I mentioned the We Are Legend stuff uh, uh, previously. Here's another one of their titles, Spirit World, from writer Alyssa Wong. Hanning as the artist. Sebastian Cheng on colors. Steve Wan's on letters. Um, Here we go again. Another one that really suffered from the break. Hard to remember what's going on. In the last issue, it seemed that uh, in the underworld or the afterlife or whatever you want to call it, wherever – our characters are basically, uh, you know, Constantine and Xanthi and uh, Cassandra Kane. Constantine and Cassandra Kane were, were so, are sort of possessed by something, some power, some whatever, the big bad, if you will, that's going after Xanthi that wants to control the underworld and what have you. Um, and so Xanthi is able to temporarily free them give give them back some of their own agency because it's not their minds that are being controlled it's just their bodies and their abilities um but she she goes out her way to say hey I, this is just a you know a temporary reprieve i haven't purged you know whatever this power is that's controlling you and they go to to um see the jade the jade court who oh, excuse me <clears throat> The jade court who are sort of the uh, <coughs> the rulers of the afterlife if you will and uh, we're not exactly sure what they want, what they're doing what they have to do other than Xanthi's um, kind of spiritual afterlife grandmother Popo, it turns out that she's one of them so there's a lot of moving parts here, there's a lot of um, uh, sort of Asian uh, mythology, spirit world mythology and what have you in this and this is another one that there's so much in here. We, we talked about it before, specifically, I think we we're either when we were going from issue one to issue two or issue two to issue three, how it had a little bit of a jump. There's so much here that Alyssa Wong is trying to pack in that it can be confusing um, because it's just, it's not being as, it, it, we're not being spoon fed as readers. Um, so I think going back when everything is all said and done and Reading it as a, a trade, or reading it all in one sitting, it's going to make more sense. It just there's so many characters, and it's it's moving so fast. And again, I understand why, because there's a lot to do here. There's a lot of characters. There's new characters constantly being introduced. The art's fantastic, really colorful. But my god, between the the amount of new characters, the mythology that I'm not that familiar with, the powers of Xanthi, which aren't well established, the powers of this. Uh, the the villain, the, the Jade Court, whatever they are, like it's it's just a lot. It's just a lot, and unless you're really focusing on this and reading it several times, I think a lot of it can slip through the cracks. So I, I feel like it's not really landing for me, but I feel like that's it's on me. It's not that it's not being done well. Um, it, there's just so much here that I feel like I need to go back and do a, probably a couple rereads of the series if I really want to get everything. Out of it because I think Xanthi is an interesting character. Um, she, there's a lot to her. Uh, she has a lot of potential. So um, from that aspect, I'm enjoying it. And I think the art, the line work by Hanning is uh, is great. The color work by Sebastian Chang is great. Um, so yeah, it's just it's a it, this was one of those things, right? It's so many comics. I just don't have time to go back and reread and really dive into it the way that I wish I could. So I don't know. What are your thoughts?
1: Well I agree with you that there's a lot of rich mythology here that I think that uh, writer Alyssa Wong is doing her best to sort of uh try to give us as a lot of substance in the opening 6 issue arc. I mean in this in this issue alone we're introduced to the inhabitants of the Jade Tower. Right? The no. Inhabitants of the Jade Tower, consisting of the, the Prince of Dawn, the Carmine Star, the Amber Apostle, the Snowfall Blade, the Gilded General, the Cobalt Advisor, the Verdant. Sorceress and these were uh, the jade these were sort of like this is sort of like the magical corporate gurus of the jade tower that make up spirit world, and they sort of they they make the rules for spirit world, but of course spirit world is sort of ran there's a little bit of corruption going on and and they're kind of they're kind of all bitches quite frankly all these sorcerers and and unfortunately it ends up being that uh, Xanthi's grandmother Poo, is is apparently one of them the the verdant sorceress is well, actually. I will say, in their
0: defense, before we call them the viewer, B- they are gods, so you <laughs> do expect some so, well, some level of arrogance. Sure. Uh, well, so, so in, in that way, they're yeah. you know they're they're no different than like Olympian gods or oh, gods or whatever. Absolutely, they're all they're all dicks.
1: Oh, certainly, certainly, I, I agree with you hundred percent. And so yeah, they they act like gods, goddesses, god, god, bo- both both gender gods are are awful. In any event. Uh, uh, but the the spirit world is being attacked by this creature that wants to. I think destroy. We're not even sure what the agenda is. They want, but this creature actually wants to particularly destroy, kill Xanthi and Constantine and Cassandra Cain. And these these gods, these gods in the Jade Tower, these goddesses don't want to help. Rather than help them immediately, they want to see what happens first. They kind of want to see. They they would they would. They're so indifferent to the plight of the people in spirit world that they don't care how many of the of the people in the spirit world will actually die uh and uh, they they don't even want to send out their mighty knight they got this this knight character their their protector that would go out and he they won't even yeah, release the golden gold general right yeah What's the golden general or something and yeah. uh and eventually they do release him to, to to fight uh to to basically help Constantine and Cassandra Kane fight and and Xanthi fight this creature and but it's it's quite clear that there's different agendas going on here so um in fairness to Elisa Wong there there is a story here. One of the things that I really wish, I really do wish we had more of a background. I actually feel like, I feel like I did when I was like seven or eight years old, when I first jumped into Legion of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, there was so much I didn't know, but, and it was like, oh God, I got to buy all these, I got to buy like 200 back issues, but I'm going to buy them because I'm, I'm interested. I actually am interested to know what the backstory to this Jade Tower is. It's interesting. But at the same time, I do feel like i have I've missed like, two or three story arcs, but yet this is the first story arc. So, and that's that's, that's that's not a bad thing because I am curious and I'm interested and these are interesting characters. So, I want to give Alyssa Wong some credit there. And to, and to her credit, she's not insulting the reader's intelligence. She's like, she's challenging us. She's saying, you know, pay attention, read, if, you know, and that's what I'm doing. And I only read this once. I apologize. I probably should have read it Two or three times. There's just too many damn comics this week. But this was. Uh, I am curious to see how this ends, and I'm hoping maybe sometimes final issues in these story arcs explain a little bit more of what went on, so I'm <laughs> to give a little bit more clarity. But I I will be rereading this after uh, later this week. Um, so, but I, I thought overall this this wasn't this wasn't bad. I I thought we had a little bit more plot development here and character movement, and I I do think that Alyssa Wong has. Uh, imbued some humor with Constantine and, and, has, and has managed to capture the voice of uh, Cassandra kane okay and, and I'm, I'm actually, i 'm actually I'm starting to like Xanthi at first I, I was a little bit annoyed with her character i wasn 't sure if I liked her or not, but she's grown on me and there, there's a lot of similarities to how this comic has grown on me similar to uh, the monkey the monkey prince so and, and I'm glad about that i, I I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. It's like, I want to, I want to either have Alyssa Wong on like, can you just explain this to me? (laughs) And There's part of me. that's like, well, it's not, it's not the, you know, it's not the best job in terms of writing. If, if the writer has to actually explain everything to me, but again, it's a problem of real estate on the page and just, you know, I think she has so many big ideas and she wants to tap into the, the, the richness of the Asian mythology and afterlife and what have you. And Xanthi, yeah, she is a likable character. And, the, the the way she's drawn like uh, it's it's so fantastic with the giant sword and kind of that innocent you know it, it does have some manga influences obviously with the big eyes and what have you shows a lot of emotion so yeah i'm, I'm really enjoying that um so i either want that hey let's get her on we'll go issue by issue you kind of can you explain to me what's going on or or just give us um like the director's cut right like we get those issues sometimes with the script and when you read the script it has more notes in it so we can understand what's going on I, this is probably not selling well enough to do something like that. It's usually stuff that sells really well, like uh, Mr. Miracle and um, Dark Knight's Death Metal and what have you. So, uh, But yeah, there, it, she is a compelling character. I, I, at some point, I will make time to reread the whole thing, probably after uh, come all of it comes out. We'll see. All right, Batman Brave and the Bold number five. We finally have the next installment of Tom King and Mitch Garrett's. Uh, Joker story, the winning card, part three. Also Stormwatch, Down with the Kings, part five from writer Ed Brisson and Jeff Spokes with Seda Tamifanti on letters. And then Harcourt, uh, Amelia Harcourt, we had part one from Rob Williams' uh, last issue of Brave and the Bold. Now we have part two, art by Stefano Landini, colors by Antonio Fabella and letters by Simon Bolin. And then Angel of Gotham, which is a black and white story written by Ed Brisson. Jorge Fornes on art, Clem Robbins on letters. I think I forgot to give Clayton Cowell's credit for letters on Batman, the winning card, which you definitely got to give him credit. Cause you know, it's kind of like a silent movie. We get those black panels uh, where just like a silent movie, you know, flash up on the screen and um, it's all about the Joker playing uh knick-knack Paddywhack And I will say that the way that, um, Mitch Garrett's drawing the Joker here where his eyes are all black with just like these glowing white pupils really freaks me out. Um, but this is a Joker story. Maybe what you would consider the first Joker story in terms of him going up against Batman or Batman, you know, trying to stop him. Yeah.
1: I well, do feel like, is, so.
0: yeah, yeah. I do feel like it's not exactly the most original, but it is a very interesting vibe because it's only silent movie whenever it's a Joker page. And then the rest of the time, Alfred's talking, Batman's talking, Jim Gordon's talking. Uh, I do Probably the thing I like about it the most is how underpowered Batman seems to be, right? Like it's the opposite of power creep, whatever the, that is. Uh, because we've talked so many times about... Everybody trying to one up. Every writer comes on, they want to tell their Batman story, and you got to do it better and bigger than the previous guy. And so Batman's got this power creep to the point where now he's jumping from the moon and landing on Earth. I you know, like he's Superman and surviving. It's just absolutely insane, it's just ridiculous. This is the opposite of that. Like Alfred's beating the shit out of him in this in this story. So I do like that. It's a very uh, it's a it's a Batman that lacks self confidence. on the other hand this is a joker that's like genius level doesn't seem insane at all uh almost like a a kevin spacey serial killer uh in seven type um intelligence where he's like seven eight nine steps ahead of everybody else including batman um so yeah uh again like some of the other stories we've talked about so far um the art and the tone of the story fit each other perfectly. Uh, this might be the best Joker art I've seen Mitch Garretts do. Like Joker is creepy and scary. And he, Joker doesn't in this story, he doesn't even really feel like a, a character. Really. He feels more like a, like a force of nature or like an evil, you know, entity an evil spirit, like, you know, supernatural ability to appear and disappear and be invisible and what have you. Like he's that, He's that powerful. He's that much smarter than everybody. Like even when he, he kills the judge that he threatens in this issue, um, you know he goes in there apparently master of disguise. Not only a master of disguise, making himself look exactly like the chief of police, but also he must he, he he's um, an expert uh, imitator as well. Right? He can do an impersonation of the chief of police because he talks. He's talking. He's sitting right across the table from this judge mm-hmm. and another officer, and he's talking. And he must sound exactly like the police chief because they're not suspicious at any point. So, yeah, interesting story. You know, again, it's Batman, it's Joker. We all know how I feel about those characters, overused. Um, But it is, it's well done. It's technically a very well done comic. So, what are your thoughts? Well, it is,
1: it it is, it is basically a a, a reimagining of Batman of the first issue of Batman. That's what Tom King based it on. So it's, it's it's the same plot as the very first issue of Batman way back in 1939 or whatever that is. So it's sort of like a reiterate, reinterpretation of what it would be in the modern day. So that explains some of the some of the angles of which I think some of the the interesting things about the portrayal of the Joker in particular, and even Batman being injured. I mean, this is a Batman in his first year. He's never encountered anyone at the level of Joker. Joker is basically maybe not Batman level, but. Close enough to Batman level that Batman is not accustomed to fighting anyone even close to his level of fitness, his level of skill, his level of intellect. And here we have somebody who is close to that level and also his, but his level of intellect as well. And that's the Joker. And Batman here is just plain stupid. Batman is is so stubborn, is so driven that he he doesn't have the shut off switch in his head to say, "Look, you need to heal." I mean, Batman was got the shit kicked out of him last last. Well. I guess two or three in the, in the last chapter of this story, Batman got beat up. He lost his battle with the Joker rather handily and he's injured. But he, you know, it's so bad that he, he instead of resting, he goes out and he ends up passing out in front of James Gordon, for God's sakes. And James, James Gordon actually ends up trying to contact takes the walkie-talkie from Batman trying to say, hey, hello, hello. And then Alfred says, uh, put him in the car and we'll do the rest. <laughs> and and it's, just, it's kind of a funny scene. So Jim Gordon, of course, does that. And then the, you know, the Batmobile closes and off goes Batman to Alfred. And then uh, the only thing that baffled me about this is I didn't quite understand why Batman was asking Alfred to hit him. He was already injured and then he wanted he wanted Alfred to can, to keep injuring him and hitting him in the face some more. It was that to, to try to wake him up or toughen him up. That made no sense to me. He, he could barely stand as it was. And he wants Alfred. Like, I think he was going all alpha male literally. Yeah, Hit me, hit me again, wake me up so I can go, you know, beat the hell out of me so I can be inspired to go fight the Joker again. I, I didn't quite get that. Cause Alfred kept hitting him and hitting him. That didn't make any sense to me. Uh, And I didn't think Alfred would intentionally want to injure him and make him more injured. So I I didn't get that scene. I didn't understand what the point of that was. Uh, uh, Or maybe I do. I just it didn't quite mesh. But other than the fact that this Batman is so badass that, you know, he even lets his butler kick the shit out of him to, to... to rile him up and give him some adrenaline. I don't know. You'd think if he wants to rile himself up, why wouldn't Alfred just give him an, a, a you know give him a shot of adrenaline or something or dopamine or something to perk him up instead of hitting him across the face. I, I didn't quite get that, but but you know again, interesting story. It's still uh, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. It'll, it'll probably read better as a full, as one full, it'll be collected eventually in one full story. Uh, as a, as a quick digression, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this Brave and the Bold. I haven't been collecting this series because I, I'm, 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 I just object to the, to the, to the series. I, I refuse to, I I just, I just, I'm not buying this series. Um, Despite the fact that uh, my favorite story, Stormwatch, which which is next, is in it, I am hoping they're going to collect these stories separately so I can decide whether or not I can get them. Right?
0: Yeah, it name. goes back to what I was saying previously about anthologies. Um, I like it; I like the idea, and so we get some good stories here. But uh, there is too much Batman. Too much yeah, Batman. It's too much. Yeah, um, don't. I mean, put out Batman and Detective and one other Batman book, and and if it's this anthology, great. But that should be it. Um, but anyway, I, do, I, yeah, I do agree with you in terms of, uh, <laughs> Batman getting, it's like, I want to be able to like, take punishment. So Alfred hit me like <laughs> I, it, it's, it's, a, it comes across as twofold. He's, he feels like he deserves to be punished because he hasn't been able to stop the Joker, but also it's like that scene from happy Gilmore where he puts the money in the, uh, batting cage so the balls can hit him in the chest <laughs> and then you know, carl weathers walks over you know chubbs he's like what the hell are you doing you're making me sick he's like i've got to toughen up only 364 days until the next hockey tryout <laughs> that's what it's it like he really he's trying to toughen himself up by letting his butler kick the crap out of him it doesn't make sense but anyway uh yeah speaking of the storm watch story um starting to come together starting to get some ideas of what's going on. Um, the precognition of Ravager here uh, as they take on the god Apollo basically allows her to see that Mr. Bones hasn't been fully honest with them, or Director Bones. I know that comes as a shock. They, I, I don't know why they're mad at him and they, they, they <laughs> act surprised. She's mad. No more secrets. Like, do you know who you're talking to, Director Bones? Of course he's all about the secrets. Like, you're not even the boss here. Yes, I am. What are you talking about? And then, of course, the real boss shows up. Of course, it's Amanda Waller. Of course i don't have anything to say other than i can't stand amanda waller she's getting to be up there with the level of batman and joker and just her overuse i i don't really have much else to say I, i'm a fan of ed brisson I'm a huge fan of ed brisson um and i think with what dc's done with you know wild waller versus wildstorm and her in the pages of just about everything and her in the finger having her fingers in in everything right now and wanting to take out the justice league and whatever i, I don't know how Ed Brisson tells this story about Director Bones um, sending Stormwatch out to you know, collect all these different weapons to, to go out and t- take on the Justice League. And, and just to bring everybody up to speed, what he has told Stormwatch is that, hey, we're going out there to gather these weapons in case the Justice League comes after us, we'll be able to defend ourselves. What they're really doing, what Bones is really doing, is sending them out to collect these weapons so they can preemptively go out and take on the Justice League per the orders of Amanda Waller. So that's completely different. But Bones tries to spit it. Oh, it's the same thing. We're just going to go take them out before they get the chance to come and take us out. I will also say that it feels very uh, Wildstorm universe, you know, in that that's what kind of the uh, Stormwatch and the Authority both were this idea of a more proactive superhero team. So it's definitely rooted this idea of the story, the big, big idea of the stories very much in keeping with you know what the idea of Stormwatch or the authority was back in the day so i I appreciate that i don't know again how ed brisson tells this story without bringing in amanda waller as much as that means i have to see her and i don't like to see her because i just don't i'm sick of the character but yeah this is good it's interesting i do really like the um the interaction. I've said it before. The characterization and the interaction, the interplay between the characters that Ed Brisson gives us. And this isn't necessarily your you know typical Stormwatch team. We we do get some kind of classic Wildstorm characters, but you know Flint and what have you. But we're also we're getting Ravager. We're getting Peacekeeper One. You know these are these are characters that are DC you know universe original characters, but that are like who they are as characters fits in so well with who stormwatch is so i really like that much more so than like when the new 52 uh you know relaunched and they relaunched with the stormwatch title and it was martian manhunter that was like um stormwatch never made any sense uh i mean he could be the most by the book character um other than uh maybe barry allen uh classic barry allen but anyway uh what are your thoughts on uh, the Stormwatch story?
1: Uh, this was my favorite story of the issue uh, by far. I've been, I've been quite enjoying Stormwatch and Brave and the Bold. And I hope they collect these stories in a separate comic book uh, because it deserves it in my mind. I, I, I love these characters, Phantom One, Core, uh Peacekeeper One, Sh- uh, Shadow, Ravager. Their mission is to steal the Sunbow, which is a weapon in the possession of Apollo. And what I find very interesting is that Apollo... Is the version of Apollo that it was in Brian Azzarello's Wonder Woman run? (laughs) That's how Apollo looked in Brian Azzarello's Wonder Woman run, and I'm thinking to myself, "That's awesome." Now I I don't for one minute believe that they're embracing uh, Brian Azzarello's Wonder Woman iteration, but this this particular version of Apollo, I like this version of Apollo. It's awesome. I'm glad they're using it. He's got dark. He he basically looks he's. He, he he looks basically he's like a human being, but he's completely totally charcoal black with red eyes, and um, and yeah, he's got the power of the sun, and he's now he of course he's got the sun bow, and that's the weapon that they that uh, Stormwatch wants. Who Stormwatch? Who it's revealed as you said is is revealed. Surprise, surprise! Amanda Waller's in control. Of Director Bones. We predicted that. I don't know how many weeks ago, months ago, and of course that's 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 part of the key agenda. What's interesting here is the motivation that Apollo had for, to have the sunbow was to actually kill Zeus. And did maybe somebody should tell Apollo that Zeus was already killed. (laughs) How many times does Zeus get killed? I mean, wasn't Zeus killed by uh, Hera and then he's back and now Zeus is alive back in the pages of Shazam. And now Apollo wants to kill him again. Do these people not realize apparently you can't kill Zeus Uh, again. That's DC editors for you. Nobody communicates between these storylines, but Apollo's big agenda is to kill Zeus. And then of course, to basically take over uh, Olympus and Ravager saw this because Ravager's Ravager has precognition sort of abilities, but they were enhanced when she was like hit with, with a bow from the, with the arrow, which was sort of interesting. And so I just liked what Ed Brisson did with all the power sets here with, with all the characters. I love that core, a core basically exploded, and core's powers were enough to take down the Sun God Apollo. Here, that's awesome. So, I like to I, I just like the power sets. I love the choreo- choreography of the fight scenes, and I, I really love the the art. I thought it worked really well, and so definitely my my favorite story of the uh, of the anthology.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm enjoying it too. I don't know if it's my favorite though, because I really like the next story, the Amelia Harcourt story, part two. Rob Williams is the the writer. Um, Again, Amanda Waller, she's been brought back. We don't know if it's Lazarus Resin. We don't know if it's Lazarus Pitt. We don't know exactly how she was brought back. But what we do know is Amanda Waller lied to her. And right off the bat, it seems like she's already getting back her true memories. Um, and despite that, despite being told by Amanda Waller that it was Weapon Master that, uh, that killed her, she realizes she's about to kill weapon master to get her revenge that it wasn't weapon master. Um, And so she walks, she starts to walk away and and weapon master is like, Oh, you know, thank God I'm going to, you know, I don't know who you are, but I didn't kill you. And, you know, uh, Amelia Harcourt memories uh, come back enough to where she realizes that the guy's telling the truth. Uh, But then she ends up killing him anyway, which sort of sets the tone for who this is. this version, I guess we'll say, of Amelia Harcourt is, is going to be um, because she still knows what, you know, says that Weapon Master is going to be, a, a you know, basically is a bad guy. <laughs> uh, but it's great. She's like, yeah, I don't know who sent you after me uh, because I got to say, you know, they, they lied to you. And she's like, uh, yeah, you're right. You're probably right. <laughs> she shoots him anyway. So it definitely feels very, very checkmate, very um, spy thriller type. Um, despite the fact it ties in with Amanda Waller. I'm liking this story. Again, it's not the most original idea, you know. Um I guess if we think about it a little bit of, like, the Bourne movies with uh, Matt Damon, right? Like, he's got these abilities and he, he's out there and he's, like, killing people left and right, but he doesn't really know who he is. Like, his memory's been wiped. So uh, Amelia Harcourt, obviously, her memories have been wiped because she was killed and then brought back by Amanda Waller in some way. And so... I think this will be her out there trying to find answers um, while probably taking people out along the way. So we'll see how it all plays out. But, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I I haven't read a lot of stories previously with Amelia Harcourt, a lot of Checkmate stuff and what have you. Uh, just never read that stuff before.
1: So uh, I am enjoying this. What, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I – it's she was a she's a popular character on the Peacekeeper show, so it's it only makes sense to revive her in the comic books. And hey, sure. we got all that Lazarus resin; we might as well use more of it, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, go ahead, revive her. I mean, good lord, DC's been uh, been reviving and creating all kinds of characters. Why not bring one that's popular from the T, from a popular DC, DC TV show? So and so, it's it's good to have her, and and, and I like the fact that she's she's more likable than Amanda. Uh, Waller Uh, now some it's funny I like the Amanda Waller on the TV on the Peacekeeper TV series more so than I like the Amanda Waller in the comics but I I like this uh, Earhart character or Harcourt character sorry I like this Harcourt character uh, very much on the Peacekeeper series and this this one here she's definitely badass and I'm not really sure you know why she's so loyal, I guess her father was, it's hint, her origin is hinted at here. Maybe her, her, her father was one, was one to follow orders and was a badass and he followed orders and he was a killer too. And so is Harcourt. But I am, I'm imagining, I'm hoping Harcourt is a little bit more complicated than that. She probably is. I'm hoping she's not as complicated as Amanda Waller is because Amanda Waller is borderline confusion. Amanda Waller has become more of a Amanda Waller, unfortunately, has denigrated into a character who, uh, frankly, it's, I I hesitate to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, badly written or misunderstood or different writers conceive of Amanda Amanda Waller very differently because she's been written very differently and we're supposed to be leading into this big event with Amanda Waller wanting all the supervillains to kill all the superheroes and give them a pardon if they do, even though she's not the president, she doesn't have the authority to do that and all this other nonsense. And she's supposed to be on Earth 3, but isn't what? Who the hell? What the hell is Amanda Waller to anybody? And then along comes Harcourt, who's now probably the most loyal soldier to Amanda Waller. I think that's who, who this Harcourt's supposed to be in this, in this DC universe, but we shall see moving forward. Yeah, it's, I mean, Amanda Waller's
0: becoming extremely, extremely unlikable. That's part of it. The other part of it is uh, she's become a plot device, she's not actually a character. She's just a plot device to yeah. introduce, you know, new concept or whatever. So yeah, you're right. There's no consistency of characterization. She's become almost like a, a caricature of, you know, who she actually is. And it's, yeah, it's, it's too bad. Um, it's too bad. Uh, anyway, the last story, uh, Ed Brisson is the writer. It's very bleak. The Jorge Fornes art reminds me a lot of Batman year one, which um, I've heard that before about Fornes is art uh, very much Uh, reminiscent of David Mazzucchelli that's really shown here as far as the story itself. Oh my God, is this bleak? This could be the bleakest story (laughs) I've ever read from Ed Brisson. You know, the fact that basically these, um, these characters, these angels of Gotham, if you will, are out here and they're um, they're basically, they, they dress up like angels and they hold signs up and they, they want people to not forget the victims of Gotham who have, who have died. Right. That's, that's their point. That's why they do what they do. Um, and so when they do that, uh, you know, there's nobility there. Um, and so one of them gets killed while doing this. And the thought being that, uh, somebody that was worried about the fact that they were going to be exposed um basically must have been behind the killing. and so Batman investigates it and finds out no one had nothing to do with the other. it was just a total totally random killing. So a couple things, right? First of all, that's super depressing <laughs> that you know that people are just you know, you're just out there trying to do your best in Gotham trying to make it a better place and you just get killed. Um, and the other part of it goes back to why would anybody ever want to live in Gotham City? So it's a bleak story, but it's you know it, it's very hard-boiled crime noir with absolutely fantastic art. So from that perspective, I thought it was really really good. Um, what are your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, I, I really don't have much to add. The art's fantastic. I, I live. I don't see a lot of Jorge uh art in black and white, but man, it's it's really good. It really it really pops off the page. It 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 really it's meant to be a dark and brooding tale and that's exactly what it is. The art absolutely fit the tone of this story. Uh, and yeah, I, I thought the story for what it was, was, was very well told. Uh, Ed Brisson, Ed Brisson's actually pretty good at telling these sort of like one shot, the, these, these sort of shorts, these sh- short stories. So yeah, I, I thought it was good. I'm not, you know, I guess this is an anthology. I, I going back to our earlier comments about, I don't know why this story needs to be in here to sort of pad it and increase the price point. Why? I mean, you've got really, you've got two fairly high profile stories with the the, the Batman, Batman one remake by Tom King and uh, the storm watch, which is leading into arguably a bigger event into 2024. Um, but but hey, I can't complain. Ed Brisson's a great writer and Jorge Fornes is a fantastic artist and it's in black and white. And so yeah. But, you know, I I, I hope I hope people can appreciate it. But I, I think I'd be really curious to know how many people are actually picking up this Brave and the Bold.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it is it is a very technically well done comic, but my God, is it depressing? Uh, as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Cause it's Batman. We got to talk about him some more Batman Catwoman, the Gotham war, red hood. Number one, written by Matthew Rosenberg art by Nicholas Sameja colors by Rex Locus letters by Troy Petrie. Uh, I, I gotta admit that, um, this didn't necessarily f- feel like it fits into the current Gotham war in terms of the relationship between Catwoman and red hood. Um, like it just—it doesn't seem like it makes sense with where they were, with how we saw them interacting with each other, and where they are in terms of um, their relationship in the the Batman or the Catwoman um, issue that we had recently. I, I just—if this felt wonky, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on. But that being said, if we just you know take this on its own with Red Hood, man, I love the way. Matthew Rosenberg writes Red Hood. It's not—I don't enjoy it quite as much as the uh, as much as I enjoy him writing Grifter, but it's close. It's really close. Um, Like that when he starts to train Catwoman, some of Catwoman's thugs, and he's giving them a bad time. It's almost like a scene out of uh, Full Metal Jacket with like a drill instructor giving them a hard time and what have you. So I enjoyed that. I, I do feel like Matthew Rosenberg does have a good handle on Jason Todd's characterization, the trauma that he carries with him, the, the anger, his hang up and obsession with the Joker, like all that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, it just, it didn't, I don't know that it necessarily, I'm just not sure where it fits in with the previous parts of Gotham City, uh, the Gotham War that we've had so far, because- it really seemed like in the latest Catwoman issue that Jason Todd and uh, Catwoman were getting along a lot better than they do here. This does started off like two weeks ago, and then that also made me think, well, what about that meeting? So is this before the meeting that they had that Rocky and I had so much discussion on? So yeah, it's just, you know what? when you, If you're going to do these events, you got to tell them you got to do it linear. You really got to do it linear, even if it's uh, you know different writers. You got to make it make sense. You can't do okay. Here's the kickoff issue. Here's the Batman tie-in. Here's the Catwoman tie-in. Oh, here's a Red Hood tie-in, but it fits in. Like some of the pages fit in over here before this issue, and then some of the pages fit in over here after this other issue. Like, yeah, because it, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. It's almost like this is a, like a standalone and not really part of Gotham War, uh, but just set during that Gotham War time. But again, even if that's the case, the, the Red Hood Catwoman relationship isn't vibing with what we what we are seeing in the Gotham War. But then again, the Batman Robin title and the way Batman Bruce Wayne acts in the first issue of that where he's all chummy chummy trying to be the good dad with Damien doesn't f- really fit with the you know flying off the handle impulsive Batman that we saw in the other issues of Gotham War either. So who knows? I mean, to me, these are editorial mistakes um, where things aren't lining up correctly and not, not making sense in terms of relationships where they stand currently they're not consistent from one book to the next and and what have you so yeah it i enjoyed this as a standalone as a tie-in to gotham war it left me a little bit confused uh i did think the nicholas image art was good was fine for what we had here uh and again i really enjoyed the dialogue from matthew roseberg he, he really has a knack for putting uh, some dark humor and some great one-liners in uh in his dialogue so what do you think
1: yeah, i I thought it was, I thought it was okay. I, I think it's it's unnecessary. It's completely unnecessary for Gotham War, and I don't think I didn't quite have the the issues that the problem you did, and maybe trying to fitting it into the timeline. I just sort of figured that while it's a little bit wonky, I this is just Jason Todd. I mean, one of the things that Zardaski, Tini Howard, and Matthew Rosenberg who and Matthew Rosenberg being the writer of this Gotham War, Red Hood, Bat- Batman, Catwoman, Red Hood story, is they're all trying to, for for some odd reason, they're really trying to establish that Catwoman has some sort of relationship or cares about Jason Todd. I mean, in the last issue of uh, Gotham War, the last chapter, Selina really cared about, she didn't want Jason Todd to be hurt because it might upset Batman, and but Batman was the one who... Jason Todd was the one that was attacking Batman and she sent him to distract Batman to begin with. And none of it's really making any sense. I, I just think the characterizations overall just haven't worked for me. I just think I, I've been very disappointed with Gotham more overall period. In And in, in this issue, we got two characters, Bash and Simpson are two bad guys, two thieves that, that Red Hood takes it upon himself to try to essentially Train, and he's going to work for Catwoman. He's going to train these thieves. So he trains Bash and Simpson to be good fighters. Uh, but what what they don't know is that the Scarecrow has managed to infiltrate their organization and, or managed to inject some fear gas into Bash. And Bash becomes a little bit more paranoid and Bash is fearful that the Scarecrow is going to show up. So when Bash and Simpson go on their first heist that Catwoman organizes for them, Bash gets all paranoid and fearful uh, primarily because of the, of the fear gas that, that uh, Scarecrow injected in him. And, and it almost goes awry, but you know, and and Bash and Simpson end up almost, Bash ends up wanting to kill a cop because it ends up being an officer of the place that we're going to rob ends up showing up. And, and Catwoman is, of course, you know, we're training these guys to be experts and not to kill. And what happens? Well, Bash almost kills the officer and red hood stops him and then red hood gets into an argument with catwoman's yelling at her saying you know what are you doing the only and then red hood suggests that the only reason i i agreed to work with you is that i wanted to see what you were up to catwoman i wanted to see what you were up to Selena, because your plan you know it sounds stupid right we're going to you're training all these thieves and then when it inevitably falls apart now we're just going to have better thieves and better killers out there that's all that's going to happen and of course he's right and that's what every that's what everyone who's criticized this storyline has said myself included and uh the bottom line is it we we kind of know that Selena's plan is a little bit we we know what the weaknesses of her plan are it's got some advantages but its weaknesses are significant and this issue ends with Bash, one of the trainees, being uh, killed. We believe by uh, we believe by Scarecrow. Uh, there is a message in, written in blood bomb above the body of ba- Bash that says, "Get your own toys, Red Hood." And is that is that Scarecrow giving sending a message to Red Hood uh, because Red Hood did train them? So now Red now it's personal, I guess, for Red Hood. And um, yeah, so it's all right. But as a distraction to Gotham War, it's completely unnecessary. And I, I do think it it doesn't, as I agree with you, Jace, it doesn't quite jive in terms of tone and and. You know, in my view, there's some inconsistency of characterization with respect to how Jason Todd's portrayed in, in Gothamore itself. But I agree with you that Matthew Rosenberg's dialogue itself, I don't mind his dialogue, and I, I've enjoyed his humor along with you throughout the various series that he's been doing for DC. So, so it's a little bit both hit and miss for me, this one.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman Beyond, uh, Neo-Gothic, Chapter 3 or Issue 3, The Tomb of Owls uh, from writers Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Max Dunbar is the artist, colors by Sebastian Cheng. letters by Hassan Osman Uh What are your thoughts on this
1: one? Uh, well, I actually thought that this one was – things are s- slowly starting to pick up more on this one. And I actually uh, – we have we have Terry McGinnis in in the bowels in the subterranean bowels of Gotham, where he's sort of infiltrating uh, o- the old Gotham City, uh, where the sort of like the the corpses and the the corpse and the and the and the souls of the Court of Owls reign and and ultimately he's with this he's with this character called Catboy, <laughs> who whose name was actually. I guess uh, Kyle at one point. And anyways, this Catboy has magical powers, and the big reveal here is that uh, this Catboy ends up being a character that was trained by an older John Constantine, which is uh, very interesting. And so, throughout this, throughout this particular issue, we get we get we get images of of the Batman Beyond and Catboy fighting the Court of Owls. And ultimately, you know, uh, defeating, well, ultimately uh, fighting them to a standstill. And as they're fighting, Batman Beyond is, Terry is talking to Catboy saying, you know, tell me more about yourself. Tell me, your, you know, you got all this magical powers. Where did you get it? And ultimately it's revealed that that's where the background that... uh, an older John Constantine, before he died, he taught Catboy a lot of his own tricks, and I thought that was interesting. Now, uh, one of the um, one of the things that I note that John Constantine has always been kind of a dick, uh, or, or kind of a kind of like a an a hole, or a, an a- <laughs> kind of like no, a jerk. He's a dick. He's yeah, he's a, a dick. dick. And I wish Catboy was more of a dick, but he's not. Catboy is kind of a nice guy. I wish Catboy was. If we're gonna have a character that was essentially John Constantine's next generation of John Constantine called Catboy in the Batman beyond series. I kind of want him to be a little bit of a dick too. I mean, I, I don't know. To me, I I like to think that, you know, if, if you're taught by an asshole, you got to learn how to be a little bit of an asshole yourself. I mean, I mean, I wanted more of that to show up with this Catboy character. Um, The other aspects of the, the the other aspects of the, of the, uh, of the, issue itself was just more, more of the battle that the, the, the art here, the art, uh, not uh, the artist by, uh, uh Max Dunbar. Dun, Max Dunbar? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was really good. It was, uh, it's very, uh, it's very dark and gloomy, but it's, it's got like a, there's a lot of green, you can tell it's underground and the way that he drew the court of owls with almost as if they're rotting and decaying. And they're talking about grasp the Kyle, take the boy, feed the garden. And then we grow and they want to grow up and they, they want to grow and rise and take over the new Gotham. And, and of course this is all in conjunction with, with, with the new, with the new mayor himself who wants to convert Gotham into a city of light. And, and, and so all this is going down underground, this battle against the old Court of Owls, the Catboy who are accessing magic that he learned from John Constantine. And all this is being revealed as Terry McGinnis and Catboy fighting the Court of Owls. And then it ends on, on, on a cliffhanger. And I thought, it was very, I thought it was very well done. I think Kelly and Lansing as writers here have, they've packed a lot of substance into each issue. We're only three issues in here. And I feel, that, I feel like we're six issues in. But I feel that each issue was easy to access, was easy to catch on to. And I, I actually, I like this Catboy character. I, and I I like this world. And I'm not a Batman Beyond. I don't consider myself a Batman Beyond fan, to be honest. Although I enjoy the character. It's not some a character that I would readily embrace. But I'm enjoying this series. And I'm remembering it, too. I remember the previous two issues. And that's saying something. Because if I can remember the... I read a lot of comics. If I can read the, if I can remember the previous two issues, that's a pretty good sign. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean,
0: again, part, part of the reason we have such a hard time remembering is because of the big break, but you're right. <laughs> I, I am remembering. We, we know it tied in. Like last time we had uh, Batman Brave and the Bold story uh, with this underground garden and what have you, and we know that, that it tied in with this. And it's just so interesting that we're going the other direction, right? Like so often with Batman Beyond, again, not the biggest Batman Beyond fan, Not that familiar with it, but I I do know that so much of what Batman Beyond has been, it's above, right? In the new Gotham City, above when everything was built up. And it's so much of him, you know, on skyscrapers and flying between buildings, whatever. So interesting that now we're going down into the bowels of Gotham, lower and lower and lower. And as as you go lower, it seems like the threats are getting bigger, right? First, he takes on Killer Croc, you know, the Batman Beyond version of Killer Croc. Now it's the Court of Owls. You know, who knows what's going to come next? So yeah, the characterization is really interesting. The fact that we're carrying on with the same supporting cast, we're seeing Lumos, who we know is kind of almost becoming the antithesis uh, or the um, the nemesis of Terry McGinnis, uh, at least for this uh, period of Batman Beyond. I think he's uh, Lumos. He's such a, a fascinating character. I, I really he reminds me kind of um, of the John Byrne era of Superman. What Lex, Lex Luthor was, right? Uh, where he he flirts around with uh, legitimacy, you know, businessman, what have you. It's kind of hard to pin him down, kind of distances himself. Um, and then Bean Boom, Boonma, former uh, police officer with Gotham City Police Department. Uh, and yeah, this new supporting character, uh, Kyle, this, this cat boy who has ties with Constantine, interesting as well. So yeah, I'm really enjoying what uh, is being done here very additive to Batman beyond. And and again, not not that I've read it all, but it does feel like, obviously this spins out of an animated series, Batman beyond showed up animated first. And it just felt like a lot of what was in the comics was just sort of um, playing off what we'd already seen, whether it's the Jokers with a Z or, you know, these other concepts from the animated series. And it, it really feels like nobody has added to the Batman beyond mythos as much as these guys have like clearly they have a love for the character and i really like the world building they're doing they're really expanding you know and i think part of that was the clean break that they did by by killing bruce wayne i mean obviously nobody wants to kill off bruce wayne but it has freed terry up to kind of be his own character right not be constantly looking over his shoulder it doesn't have that crutch so to speak so uh between that fresh writing and uh, really, a great jumping on made for a great jumping on point as well um, for both of us, uh, but also the max Dunbar art, as you mentioned, really really strong uh, the color work as well, especially when we start talking about the pages with lumos or he 's so bright he literally looks like he 's glowing on the page, so great work by Sebastian Chang uh, all right, get to the first of our big debuts this week. Um, I guess kind of highly anticipated. Certainly uh, the last run on Flash, the Jeremy Adams era, was very, very well-received by Wally West fans. We know Jeremy Adams is a huge West fan himself. So I think part of the reason that, that this Cy Spurrier-written uh, Flash book is so anticipated is everybody wants to see, okay, is it going to keep up the quality? Is it going to be good? What, you know, We've heard cosmic horror. How does that fit in with – Wally West and The Flash, Mike Diodato Jr. is the artist, Trish Mulvihill in colors, Hassan Otsman Elhow in letters. Uh, I'm going to let you go first, Rocky, because I, I have a feeling you enjoyed this more than I did. But uh, I guess we'll see. What do you think?
1: Uh, well, first, I want to talk about uh, the various covers I we had the Rose Bech covers. I, I, I decided to get all the Rose Bech. I'm getting all the Rose Beche variant covers for DC, only because there's, she's got a, such a unique, eclectic style. <laughs> so I thought I'd get those. But I was, um, I was hoping for a little bit more variety in the, in the covers, to have more reflective of the content. That's my constant com, uh, complaint. But the, the covers are actually not bad. I actually like the cover uh, by Mike Diodato Jr. of uh, Mirror Master. Who doesn't actually appear in the first issue here, but he does appear. His first appearance in the series is on the cover of one of the variant covers of issue one. I thought it was pretty good. I am. I do have a bias. I love Mike Deodato's art, and I enjoy it in this issue. I, I have. A, I, I believe you, you indicate that you're not a fan of his art, but uh, I. I didn't. There's there's a lot of the a lot of very different stylistic. Uh, Flash covers here for the for this for this opening issue. Even Riley Rosmo's uh, cover is actually kind of interesting. You know, I, I didn't mind it. But in any event, what did I think of this? Uh, what did I think of this opening issue? This is uh, this is not your Jeremy Adams Flash, <laughs> but there are some references to Jeremy. Jer- uh, there are some like you know references to the things that Jeremy Adams introduced. Uh, essentially, what this issue involves is. Uh, something's wrong with the Speed Force. Something is wrong with the Speed Force. Max Mercury and Bart, Bart uh, they they discover it. They they fail to access the the Speed Force. Something is wrong. Max sees a vision of a uh, of a buffalo when which is uh, when he when he's when they fail to access the 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 Speed Force. Max sees a vision of this buffalo, and that's that's just the way that he. Uh, it's an essence stating that uh, something is wrong with the speed force and, and the vision was just uh, – he was given a vision that he could in a particular manner that would relate to his past and because he uh, – because that was part of his uh, – past culture buffalo and then back in the 1900s that's just what he saw and meanwhile wally has been uh experiencing wally west has been experiencing pain when he when he's running at fast speeds but wally isn't telling anybody this he's not he doesn't even tell mr terrific this wally is making a catastrophically stupid mistake and um it's 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 a little bit i'm surprised that wally wouldn't tell anybody i don't I, that, that bothered me that, I mean, his own his own children are, have access to the speed force. And uh, he's he's got Mr. Terrific by his side. He's a member of the Justice League. He's got members of the Flash family that are also reliant and have access to the speed force. And he's experiencing pain in the speed force. And he's not telling anybody. Uh, that's, he's endangering their lives. And he should know better than that. But but he, he doesn't tell anybody. And while he goes on to fight guerrilla Grodd's forces... And as he's fighting Gorilla Grodd's forces in this issue, he encounters another speedster that he begins to refer to as the Indigo Streak. It's an indi uh, the in- color of indigo and so this Indigo Streak is this mis- mysterious streak that is working with Gorilla Grodd. And Grodd gives Wally uh his condolences at one point saying about sorry about you breaking up. And um but we don't know what Grodd is talking about. What do you mean breaking up with the speed force? What is he referring to? We're not really sure. Uh, Grodd is there apparently at different, he seems to show up at different times making calculations involving the speed force. Uh, at one point when Flash stops Gorilla Grodd, uh, Flash is actually on fire and uh, a couple of police officers are even abducted by Grodd and nobody knows why. And But here's where, uh, but I, I want to say this. I don't say this with pessimism. I say this with, I actually like this. This was easy to follow to me. I thought this was easy to follow. I thought the art was. I thought the art was excellent. I. I but I, I do have a bias. I love. I, I love um, uh, Mike Diodato's art. I thought it worked really well here. And in particular, where where it shines is uh, while while this central mystery of this of this uh, poisoning or or something's off with the Speed Force, I like there's the characterization of, of Linda, of, of Wally's wife, Linda, because Linda now, because she's no longer pregnant, she's given birth, she's, she's a mother now, but she doesn't have access to the Speed Force anymore. And as she notes, as she notes um, Linda's perspective is different than the rest of the family now, because she's the only member of the, her family that, that is not a speedster she doesn't have access to the speed force and I love the I love the angle that's uh writer writer is taken with Linda. He says, you know, at one point I love the language he uses. He says the people she loves will live a thousand moments in every one of her dull seconds. And that's how Linda is beginning to view it, like because at one point Wally goes to to, to talk with the kids and the, and she can tell she knows they're talking at super speed and, and that you know she's she feels part of her feels a little bit left out and she's she is frozen in the amber of the ordinary. I thought that was what a wonderful phrase. Cy Spirier, I loved his use of language here. is almost it was very poetic uh, it reminiscent a little bit of Ram V, but even surpassed him at parts. And I thought it conveyed very well for. Me me the the what what Linda was feeling and that Linda has a different experience uh w- had a different experience when she was pregnant because when, while she was pregnant because she had access to the speed force because of the the baby growing the, the speed force baby growing inside of her <laughs> who would come who would be called Wade uh she wrote five books she saved the world and was very very active I mean so she accomplished quite a bit there and uh so I thought it was very interesting the angle there with uh with uh, Linda um, there was, uh, uh there are, uh, Wally does talk to Mr. Terrific. Mr. Terrific, uh, asks if the speed force is acting up. Wally has, Wally does have a vision of this that tells him that the uncoiled, something called the uncoiled are coming, but he doesn't tell Mr. Terrific about his vision. Uh, reality is slipping. He's having hallucinations. Um, and there's even a, uh, there's even a side mention of PJ who is Mr. Terrific's son. Now that PJ's son or pardon me, Mr. Terrific's son was introduced, but in the final issue of Jeremy Adams flash run where, uh, Wally went into the, you know, took off and was gone for many years, came back with a beard, uh, but brought back some children. One of the children was Mr. Terrific's son is still alive and he's, and, uh, Mr. Mr. T reveals that he has three hours of bonding per day with his son, PJ. We have not met PJ yet, but that might be in a future issue. So speculator alert, um, uh, so we've got these uh, gorilla gauntlets uh, as well. The, this indigo speed, speedster—it's all a mystery—and uh, just I, I thought it was intriguing. And all the while, we also got Maxine Baker and Irie are at school, and they have a diary similar to Jay's action log, which is referenced, which Jeremy Jeremy Adams introduced, where Jay had an action log, uh, and Max creates a Maxine creates a distraction while Irie goes to check on Jay at the principal's office, only to find that Jay is found shirtless and crying in in a, in a room and he's talking to some mysterious person and we don't know who it is. So uh, this is all serious stuff because again, Wally is, is notes so, knows something wrong with the speed force. It's affecting his son, Jay, p- probably his daughter as well. He's not saying anything to Mr. Terrific. There's going to be consequences here for Wally not being more on the ball than he is here. And I think this works. Uh, I think this works really well. And, um, um, now we also get another character at the end, a lot happened in this issue. A kid speed speedster named Chad tries to help Wally at the end when Grodd shows up again, but ends up getting recalculated and his body becomes like a fractal monkey suit at the end. And he changes into something which looks really, really uh oh, kind of like awful. And I don't know what he turned into, but, uh, There's a lot here. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to unpack. But for a first issue, I thought this, I'm I'm, I'm captivated. I got, this pulls me in. I want to know where this is going. I didn't find this confusing. I found it, there was a lot there. But if I took the time to read it, it was, the mysteries were there. And uh, while not everything's explained, the mystery is established Going into future issues, so and I thought the art was tremendous, and I was quite happy with it. But uh, do you do you do you think differently? <laughs> I one hundred percent think differently. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. If you want to take
0: the if, if you want to take the absolute high concept and say, okay, it's cl- it's very it's a very simple story. Uh, we're told for the gist of the story is there's something wrong with the Speed Force. Okay, you're right. That's a very simple idea. Unfortunately. Cy Spurrier throws tons of word salad at us, uh, and I don't know why. It's so unnecessary for him to just throw these $9 words at us, You know, even when you have scientists talking to other scientists. Can you tell this bio voting imbecile that uh, this theory is canonical in nature? There's no reason. There's no reason. There's no reason f- for it. This is not how like, our like, are you size just trying to sh- explain to us that you have a, a very, you know, broad vocabulary? Guess what? I don't care. I don't care. There's so many of those types of situations where he uses words that are just outside of people's everyday speech. It's going to turn people off. It, it makes it feel pretentious. And it doesn't come across as a simple story. Is it a simple concept? Yes, one could argue it's a very simple concept and in fact, a very unoriginal concept. Oh my God, there's something wrong with the speed force. Well, that hasn't been explored one million times in the flash. So between that, between the body horror, between the overly complicated style of art that Mark Mike Diodato uses now, like I, I think back to Diodato's art, uh, like on Wonder Woman back in the day, how much I just loved it. And I don't, I just don't understand his style of art now where he breaks panels um, three or four times a page, to, you know, he bleeds into the borders, into the gutters. And, and oftentimes when you look at that extra art, it's not additive at all. Um, like he'll do, you know, five or six panels across the page that are all the same scene. And I don't know, even know why there's panel breaks. So no, I'm not I'm not a particular fan of of what Diodato's art just his page layout. The art itself is fine, but I don't care for his panel layouts, I don't care for his page layouts. Um, and I think that in terms of the story, yeah, the, the big idea of something wrong with the speed force is not, you know, the biggest idea in the world or the most original like I said, but it, it feels like Cy is trying to make it complicated for the sake of making it complicated to make it seem smart. There's no reason for it. But when you have all these, the words and the vocabulary that seem overly complicated, and then you add in what feels like overly complicated page layouts to me, it just feels like a lot. It just feels like a lot. And I have a feeling that when you, I mean, you really couldn't go, from doing something more different than what Jeremy Adams did, than than this, like this feels so, like absolutely, like they thought, l- let's find the story that is absolutely most antithetical to what Jeremy Adams did. Let's let's ask people for the most complicated, um, you know, art style, the most complicated kind of story and mystery and what have you, and we'll do that. And it really makes no sense to me because. Flash was selling really, really well with Jeremy Adams writing it. And this could not be more different in tone. So, if, if that's what they wanted, if they wanted to go completely opposite in tone of what Jeremy Adams is doing, they succeeded. Is it interesting? Is it compelling in and of itself? Forget about anything that came before. It's mildly interesting. Um, again, the whole idea of cosmic horror has me a little worried. I'm, at this point, really sick of body horror. Really? And it feels like that's what we're going to get. You know, you mentioned the kid that got turned inside out. I don't know what he turned into. You know, he, he Flash said he, he got he got turned inside out. Literally, the guy <laughs> got killed. His <laughs> organs that are on the inside are now on the outside. We, It's not a, you know, like a close up detailed shot or whatever. But again, it's a you know, it's a DC comic. It's not going to be too gross. But it, from what you see, it's pretty gross. And that doesn't, you know, fill me with much hope. In fact, it fills me with a lot of trepidation when you talk about cosmic horror, body horror, that kind of thing. To me, the idea of Flash as a horror comic is never really going to work. So, you know, we already have hints that all the speedsters on planet Earth need to be killed because they are basically by tapping into the speed force, they're dooming us all. But one of the things I hate most in storytelling is happening here, and maybe this is what really has me turned off on the story more than anything. Wally's keeping secrets from Mr. Terrific and not telling him about what he thinks are hallucinations, but really are slips through the Speed Force or Multiverse or whatever. So he's keeping secrets from Mr. Terrific. Mr. Terrific is, speak, is keeping secrets from Wally. Wally's keeping secrets from Linda. Linda's keeping secrets from Wally. I, I dislike this so much. This type of storytelling, it doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel real. You know what happens? It's like a goddamn episode of Three's Company, where a shit goes sideways because there's a misunderstanding because fucking people don't tell each other what the fuck is going on. Just be honest with each other. Hey, Mister Trufic, guess what? I'm I'm having these slips. I'm having these hallucinations. Something bad is going on. Wally, it's it's a good thing you've mentioned that to me. Maybe we can get to the bottom of this. My scientists are telling me that by accessing the speed force all these years, the the speedsters on planet Earth have hastened the demise. All of reality is in danger. But none of that's going to happen. Instead, the shit's going to hit the fan because Wally didn't tell Mr. Terrific. Mr. Terrific didn't tell Wally. Linda didn't tell Wally. Wally didn't tell Linda. Like all this garbage that's going to happen. Because people just didn't tell others what's going on. Does Wally not trust Mr. Terrific? Does Mr. Terrific not trust Wally? Like when there's something going on at my job that other people need to know that might affect them, guess what? I tell them. It's, 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 it's the laziest, stupidest kind of storytelling that is supposed to be disguised as smart because, oh, I'm going to use eight syllable words because I'm size per and oh, by the way, I'm going to get Mike Diodato, who's going to give me the super complicated page layout to make my story seem even smarter. So, yeah, I didn't really like it. Yeah, it was I a little think, bit of a rant there, but yeah. I don't, I, just... <laughs> I don't think it's going to be successful. I have a feeling I'm going to be in the majority when it comes to the story. Of, yes, of yes. I, like I, the, I believe you will,
1: far. yes. Yeah. I'm just so, you know I'm just trying to find some uh I I I actually I agree with you that, that the characterization seems a little off I all the secrets there I think are I don't quite buy in that everyone would would be that secretive to each other uh, coming out of Jeremy Adams run uh however I am intrigued by the I am intrigued by the plot line even though we've uh, we have seen that we we've seen speed force stories before no question about that uh, this one this maybe it's just the tone and and uh the way the way it comes across but i uh f- fool that i am i'm going to i'm going to err on the side of optimism <laughs>
0: hey i hope i'm wrong and i eat my words and i'm like oh my god this was so good spice yeah i just yeah yeah not liking it Uh, All right. Moving on. Tales of the Teen Titans, number three, starring Donna Troy, written by Steve Orlando. Kath Lobo is the artist for pages one through 27. And then Bob Quinn handles the art on pages 28 through 30. Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Uh, I feel like the story does a good job of capturing the overall feel of who Donna Troy is um and kind of her doubts you know the, the the character we know the inherent problems with it you know changing her origin and she oh she's wonder woman's daughter she's wonder girl she's not wonder girl she's uh just you know the, i mean just the fact that they even just refer to her as one as donna troy now rather than a wonder girl <laughs> you know so you can understand that i'm glad that they um tied that in it, They and they could have gone a different direction with this story which I'm sort of glad they didn't, but at the same time, it would have been nice. Like when I look at that main cover that you have up behind me, if uh, people are watching on YouTube, um, like you even see a picture, it's by Nicola Scott and the, the covers, Art's Gorgeous. You even see when she got married to Terry, was it Terry Long, I think his name was? Yeah. Uh, I know his first name was Terry, but um, so yeah, like a flashback of the different eras or whatever. But again, it's kind of hard to do that because what what's actually still in canon and what's not, it can be a little... Uh, A little problematic. So instead, what Steve Orlando does is he shows who Donna Troy is. Like, forget about any different retcons or changes in her origin or um, her relationships or what have you. Like at the core, who Donna Troy is, Orlando captures that very, very well, right from the start. Right there's, and I will give credit for them tying it in a little bit to Tom King's uh, Wonder Woman number one because they do mention Axe, the Amazon extradition enforcement.
1: Mm-hmm. Agency yeah. or whatever it
0: is. entity, yeah, uh, entity. There you go. Uh, but she's like Donna Troy, and I don't care about any of that. I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get to the truth, you know. And and that's who she is. And when she finds out something terrible is happening in Markovia, she takes. She doesn't delegate. She doesn't call the Titans. She just, you know, she's like Superman in that way. She's just gonna go and handle the problem. And so I appreciated that. It really. Maybe more so than doing any sort of flashback or whatever. And then you have to worry about what's in continuity, what's canon, what's not. Just show her as a person of action, as a hero um, with compassion and agency. And I, I really appreciated that. The art wasn't my favorite um, style of art, it was a little on the animated style. Um, so I, I did like Bob Quinn's art better when we got the last couple pages with Nightwing and Donna talking. Um, but I felt like Orlando did a good job of summing up who Donna Troy is by telling a new story and us seeing Donna Troy be badass and go into Markovia and take out this new um, Baron Bedlam. So if anybody's you a know, big fan of the Outsider, Batman and the Outsiders from back in the day will remember Baron Bedlam, uh, especially as drawn by Jim Aparo, the late, great Jim Aparo. Uh, well, this is his son who has similar powers Um and yeah, there's mentions even to Doctor Helga, uh, who was a, a character back then. Uh, I think she was one of the ones that gave um, Geo his powers. Which we won't we won't get into DC turning Geoforce into a villain, which still <laughs> really bugs me. I mean, God, just I mean, I guess he's more interesting as a villain, but man, he got done dirty. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. This is a great story. Uh, and I will say overall, these Tales of the Teen Titans have done a good job if, if, uh, of kind of explaining who these characters are and introducing them to a new uh, generation of readers. And, and I feel like that, that's that been the point of them. Uh, and they've done a good job. I would even go so far as to say, as, as much as I disagree with Rocky when we talked about Teen Titans last time, he thinks it's going too slow, I think, we're only a couple pages in. I will say these... Teen Tales of Teen Titans stories are, are better than the regular Titans series. Um, not that I'm not enjoying Titans, but these are doing a better job of being like complete stories and better pace. And you're getting more story in the same amount of pages than we are in regular Titans. That seems to be more of a slow burn. Uh, anyway, what'd you think
1: of uh, Donna Troy? I, I thought this was a good one shot issue. It, it, it's, you know, uh, Steve Orlando, uh, you know he was a along he wrote Wonder Woman for a good period of time and uh he know, he knows this character and it tells he knows Donna Troy and thank God he does because boy it would be really easy for somebody to screw this character up because Donna Troy has she's in Donna Troy's in competition with with Hawk girl Hawkman uh power girl in terms of the most convoluted backstory in history as you can imagine i mean you could flip, you know it's a It's a multiple coin toss to see which one of those characters is more convoluted. But uh, you know, right right from the opening page, you know, he takes a page from Grant Morrison's All Star Superman, uh, with four panels: a daughter discarded, a, a sister rescued, a warrior raised, a hero reborn, a hero born. That that really does I- encapsulate very simplistically uh, Donna Troy, and and it works. And what I like about it is that you know she's she's a fashion photographer, and we have Vixen in here. Justice League is off the table, so when Donna Troy finds out that Markovia is that Baron Bedlam is going to be making a move to take over as dictator of uh, Markovia. She uses uh, her connections with Vixen. Vixen has her own organization, international organization that she utilizes to uh, infiltrate uh, Markovia. And you don't waste any time. Uh, it's In many ways, the story is perhaps... A little overly simplistic, but but it does the job because it conveys what Donna Troy is and what she stands for. And actually does a better job of conveying what she stands for than any story I've read of Wonder Woman conveying what Wonder Woman stands for. Uh, although I really enjoyed Tom King's uh, Wonder Woman number 1, which did a good job, in my view, uh, getting to the point of what Wonder Woman is. But I, I thought this was very well done. I like Kath, uh, Kath Lobo's art. I, th- I thought it was really good, as well as the other artists you mentioned. I I thought this was uh this was well done. I thought this is by far the best one so far. I enjoyed this more than the Raven I the Starfire one was a misfire for me. I was not a fan of the Starfire story. It was uh Raven I didn't mind the Raven story, but it was a little convoluted. This one was more clear, concise to the point, and really I think I'm I'm more excited for the more the character now and the art was better straight up the art was better the art was more consistent with the beautiful cover by Nicola Scott it's nice to have interior art that's more in keeping with the style on the cover and I think that's just better for sales too but this is a, my favorite cover so far do it absolutely gorgeous I mean Donna Troy who she's hot but yeah I <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I enjoyed this it was it was it was a good issue yeah I will say that
0: in, you know in comparing this to to raven um the thing about the raven issue was it was raven taken on trigon again yeah <laughs> like, yeah it was nice yeah. to see donna troy take it I, like i as soon as uh baron bedlam was mentioned and markovia was mentioned i was like oh okay yeah steve orlando which doesn't surprise me steve orlando's um you know, he's a student of dc history as well kind of similar to uh to Jeff Johns in that way. So it it doesn't surprise me that he's going to, you know, go to the well, but there's so many interesting, you know, locations and characters and whatever. Markovia, we haven't seen in a while. Other than, like I said, the DC doing Geo Force force dirty. So uh, it was nice to see Markovia and references to outsiders and what have you. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have uh, Static Shadows of Dakota, number six, Battle of Wills, written by Nicholas Draper Ivy, and Vita Ayala. Art by Draper Ivy, Letters by Anne World Design. Um, this issue, you know, we know we, we got an extra issue of this. Uh, instead of ending with issue six, it's going to end with issue seven. I don't know if this was the extra issue or not. Um, very well, maybe. Maybe Ivy needed more time to finish the final issue because this issue, uh, and I have no idea how long it took him to do the art in this issue, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was a little less time that it takes him to do a lot of the issues because it's really dark it's a lot of like big panels and basically the whole issue is sort of uh, an internal struggle between Static and Ebon uh, who's sort of the I don't want to say the bad guy but um, the antagonist of this story right like we know Ebon's Brother has been kidnapped by all this uh, nefarious organization that's after Bang Babies and what have you, and he's been trying to recruit Static to go out and kill these guys. Uh, You know, he's more of a Final Solution type guy, uh, and he he uses he calls Static Hero in a derogatory way. You know, many times throughout this issue, so that's that's sort of the whole issue. Um, So I I wasn't a big fan of the art because, and it makes sense that it's so dark and such thick lines when you're talking about a story that takes place sort of in the mind or the shadow world, if you will, of Ebon, um, sort of thing is you know, dark and static eventually reaches him by sort of using his power to sort of illuminate everything and sort of remind Ebon of more of his human side, who he was before he got his powers and still agree to go and you know help free Ebon's brother no matter what the cost. So I feel like this was supposed to be a hugely impactful issue. The problem I have with it is we've had some really emotionally impactful issues, including the last one, the previous one, also the one where we saw the aftermath of Quincy's death. And I feel like the emotion in those issues was sort of the byproduct of of telling a very good story, right? And it didn't feel like it was so purposeful, like they were going out of their way to really tug at our heartstrings. This one, it feels like They're, they're purposely trying to make it emotional. They're purposely trying to make it emotionally impactful, uh, in such a way that it kind of goes a little too far and it, it, it it leans a little into like cliches and tropes. And so then it didn't, it didn't land for me. Like I didn't feel emotionally invested. I just, I really couldn't wait for this to kind of be over because, you sort of expect what's going to happen right well we know that static and ebon are eventually going to team up and they're going to go take out the bad guys and probably rescue Ebon's brother like that's what we expect to happen right it's a dc superhero comic so i'm kind of ready to get to that um so to have this confrontation take this whole issue in a way again that's supposed to feel like it's impactful and oh static reached him by you know appealing to his better nature and what have you It just felt a little, like I said, tropey. So this probably one of my least favorite issues of the series so far. Um, But I will say, you know, as much as the art was kind of dark at points and, and whatever and really thick lines, which is not a style that I typically enjoy. It's the story, the narrative or the visual storytelling is still done really, really well. And there are really, really impactful visuals in here at times. Um, Draper Ivey is an is extremely talented artist, so I don't want to sell him short on that. Um, but I think just for me, this issue is just a bit of a miss. It's still a technically well-done comic, but just it, there wasn't a lot there for me. It did, just didn't land, um, unfortunately. So uh,
1: what were your thoughts on it, Rocky? I, I- I felt a little bit more. Uh, I was more satisfied with it than than, than you were. I, I I did. The art was was not as great as previous issues, although I you there was perhaps an in story reason why because they were in like a shadow realm. Uh, Draper Ivy's art is norm is is still really really good, and and the entire point of the issue was this conversation between uh, Static and Ebon, uh, and. Edmund wants to save his brother and he wants to use lethal force. He wants to kill to do it. He wants Static to join him, but to use lethal force. And so in many ways, this was a conversation between these two relatively young uh, heroes. Well, one a hero, one a potential villain, perhaps future anti-hero or villain, Ebon himself, uh, they're, 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 they're debating the use of lethal force. They're also de- talking about loss and how to channel that loss and how to do it. Ebon can only focus on the suffering. And Static's message is, you know, you're focusing on the suffering and the loss, but focus on the other things that, that led that led to that suffering focus the reason why you're suffering right now is because you're, you're fearful of loot you've lost friends that you've loved focus on the love that was lost focus on that love don't focus focus on the suffering as a result of the loss of that and i think i think there's there's, there's a lot of meaning there i know you, you've you've indicated that well perhaps it's a little bit tropey and there's some tropiness there but then this is sort of a static as a new character being introduced to a new a new generation. And I, I think that this is the type of message that for this type of character, this is in particular, this is the type of message that really needs to be hammered home. Uh, and, and I think it really, I think it works uh, very well. I also, I, I really appreciate it when static talked about Quincy, the, the young boy who he sort of like was sort of like he was the mentor of. And he, he, Quincy was a character that I loved, and uh, and and he he sheds a tear talking about Quincy because he loved Quincy, but that Quincy himself, this young genius that could have done so much to perhaps better the world, his life cut short because of it, and the tragedy of it all, and Quincy, how disappointed Quincy would be if if they they used lethal force and took uh, and embraced the darker angels of their nature. But I thought it was a I thought it was a well written issue. I thought it was the themat- the uh, this was the moral centerpiece of all the issues. And if this was extended a, a, an extra issue, it was probably to get this conversation in this issue to take place. Albeit, I don't think they needed the entire Vita I L and needed the entire issue to do it. But I, I appreciate that what, what she was going for.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, Draper Ivy and Vita I L are both writing this. If you ask Vita, they'll say that, uh, Draper Ivy's doing the heavy lifting. It's clear that Draper Ivy's a huge static fan. I don't know how much input Vita's giving, but they're a very talented writer. It's going to be curious to see. We know we're going to get another limited series. We're going to get season three. It's going to be interesting to see if Vita's still a co-writer or if Draper Ivy's going to handle it all on their own. Are we going to get completely new input with new creative teams? I guess we'll see. Uh, All right, up next we have Action Comics number 1057. Main story written by, or the first story, I should say. They're all sort of equal in length. Uh, First one is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art by Rafa Sandoval. Colors by Matt Herms. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, The art by Rafa is really fantastic. And uh, again, such great world building by Philip Kennedy Johnson. This is the First um, issue of a new arc, but it's definitely tying in with previous uh, stories uh, that we've gotten from Kelly, Philip Kennedy Johnson. So this um, this movement, this even the government uh, characterizes them as a, a terrorist organization, this Blue Earth uh, organization, who's really xenophobic and you know aliens shouldn't be here and what have you. Uh, they reach out to the Daily Planet. They say they'll give an exclusive interview to the Daily Planet, but it has to be Clark Kent that gives the interview. Uh, it becomes clear at the end they know that Clark Kent uh, has some tie to Superman or is Superman himself. Um, and there's some debate, which I appreciated, uh, you know, in terms of being kind of meta and tying in the real world. There's some debate whether the Daily Planet should even be having this interview um, because, it, in a way, it gives legitimacy to this Blue Earth movement. Uh, but the point that Lois and Clark make is, that, well, if we don't, they're going to go down the street to somebody else who may not fact check them as well as as we will. Um, so it, it does seem like the Blue Earth movement is running sort of as a false flag operation because at the end, after Clark um, interviews them they attack Clark Kent. This guy attacks Clark Kent and he he's dressed as Superman he looks like Superman. Well, we clearly, we know that he's not Superman. So maybe they don't even realize that Clark Kent is Superman. Maybe they just are attacking. The reason they wanted it to be Clark to interview them is because then they can show Clark Kent being attacked by Superman. Everybody in terms of the world knows, Hey, Clark Kent and Superman are friends, but as a blue earth, we want to show that. Yeah. Look at how bad these aliens are. They'll even attack their friends. Superman's supposed to be friends with Clark Kent. Look, he's even attacking Clark Kent so we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, how I mean, can Clark fight back against Superman without revealing that he himself is Superman? We'll have to wait and see. Um, it is an interesting story, and it is sort of meta, but in a way, it's also depressing, right? Like we talked we talked about this years ago, uh, three or four years ago, when j- just based on conservatism and what's going on politically in the world, how it's so many. Uh, of the villains and the villain groups and comics were leaning toward fascism um, and how it gets kind of depressing that it sort of comics can reflect the bad things that are going on in society. And then it ends up not being a reprieve, right? We want to read these stories to kind of get away from the crappiness of real life and bad things going on in the world. It, I'll feel that way a little bit here, right? Like I've, I, I'm so anti-xenophobia, <laughs> Like I hate that idea. Uh, I think you should judge everybody on an individual, and you can't just, you know, make generalizations and paint them all with the same brush. If somebody's not from the United States or whatever, then they're just bad. Somebody's not from Earth, they're just bad. If they're an alien, you know, an extraterrestrial, they're just bad. I, I just don't think you can make that generalization. You can't make that assumption. So I, I don't like that idea. So th- this this blue Earth as an entity as a, you know, as an organization in this book, it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel good, which I, you know, it's not supposed to, but it's just, it's a little depressing that it's even a thing Uh, even, even in fiction. So, uh, but the art's fantastic. fantastic. Really love Philip Kenny Johnson, Uh, man. Superman's his favorite character and it just shows issue after issue, how much he loves Superman. So it's definitely working for me. What did you think of this main story or the the first story I should say?
1: I thought it was really good. I, I liked the way it opened up with Superman uh, talking to a construction worker who was a uh, a reformed villain, former villain of Superman uh, and Superman uh, is visiting him having lunch with him on top of a skyscraper that's uh, under construction and the and the and the the guy even says to him, you know why are you why are you having lunch with me? why are you talking to me and and of course, Superman says, you know I mean, Because, you know, it, it matters. And the fact is Superman cares. He cares what happens to the guy. Superman, he follows up on the people that he, on the form, the villains, he might stop them, but he, he cares about what, what happens to them. I'm going to say again, I've said this before in our last review, Superman, the way Philip Kennedy Johnson is writing Superman, that's exactly what Wonder Woman has been written to have done in some issues. That's exactly what you would expect Wonder Woman in many ways to do, which I find ironic. Um, uh so Superman is uh, – but in any event, it, it's nice that Philip Kennedy Johnson – you can tell he loves Superman and he's, he's, he sees Superman as as caring about everyone he helps and he's always going to check up on people. He's going to check up on the reform. He'll check up on Metallo. He cares about Lex Luthor even in the pages of Superman. Super, Lex Luthor is the only person they were, he ever uh, failed to, to, to reach. But in any event – the, the issue itself, uh, the issue itself, I thought, worked really well with this Nora Stone, who was the leader of this Blue Earth movement, and that the, all the machinations and the, and the struggle of the daily planet, the ethical issues they had, should they give voice to this, to this uh, p- uh, terrorist group, uh, and they decide they're going to, they insist on talking to Clark Kent, and I like the way, I like that it, it, it had to be Clark Kent, and they they undoubtedly have a reason that they want it to be Clark Kent I because it, it, we don't see enough of Clark Kent and I like the way that there's a balance there. PKJ manages to balance all the characters of the Superman family of which I still maintain are too damn many but he still manages to make this very interesting story out of it and the way, uh, even the way... Uh, Lois Lane, uh, you, the struggles and stresses she has as as an editor, as the as the editor in chief, that's coming through in flying colors. She's uh, she doubts herself, but Clark is there to support her, and he's also there. He's a pretty damn good reporter. The, you, you mentioned the conversation between Nora Stone and Clark Kent, the way he the way he questioned her. He didn't, you know, the way she tried to intimidate him. He, Clark Kent is a very good reporter. He comes across as a very good interviewer, and he's not in any way intimidated. And I loved what PKJ, PKJ did here. Uh, rather, the artist uh, Sandoval did a fantastic job as as Clark's interviewing. Uh, Nora Stone, he could tell when she was lying, when she was telling the truth, when she was lying. He was checking her out, literally, <laughs> checking her out, but for legitimately good reasons, you know, and he could tell when she was lying and, and he was, you know, what her motivations were and, or he was questioning her. And, and it was, you know, we, I I felt like I was Clark Kent when, when Clark Kent was interviewing her. The reader, you, you can we feel like we're actually Clark Kent talking to her and, and we, we can see through her with the x-ray vision thanks to the Sandoval art and, and we felt really part of the scene and that's something you can really only do in comics and it, it, it works so well and I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I don't know where this is going with this Blue Earth terrorist group why do they care about you know alien threats what's the what's the true agenda you know the suggesting that even superman's a threat and superman maybe is the the head of all this threat and bringing all these aliens to earth because of war world and because even with his origins i mean there's a lot going on here what's their true agenda we don't know but man pkj's done a really good job and i'm invested i'm really i'm invested in the story so and it's such a welcome, and I didn't feel like I missed anything coming out of Night Terrors, which is really nice as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, they were lucky that they finished off one arc. You know, not everybody had that luxury that they finished one arc and went, you know, went right to the next one. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I want to mention Um it, as opposed to the Batman books, which we you know, talked about earlier, how they little feel a little wonky, Gotham War is going on, they don't all feel like they're set during Gotham War, what have you. I give credit to the editorial group that's on the Superman books in that whether it's Superman, whether it's action comics, whether it's Steelworks, whatever, they all feel like they these writers are talking to each other more so than the Maybe it's because there's so many Batman books, so many different things going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mentioned how it doesn't feel like Rom V's uh, detective stories in any way going on during Gotham War or what have you. Um, so, could be before, could be after. I mean, who knows? But you get references to Blue Earth in Steelworks, you get references to Blue Earth in Superman. These books feel like they could be happening simultaneously. I appreciate that. I like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It feels like it should in terms of. Uh, terms of continuity and, and being tied together. All right. Second story is the Dan Jurgens Lee Week story. Dan Juergens on uh, writing, Lee Weeks art, Elizabeth Brightweiser handles the colors, Rob Lee on letters. We know last time that uh, as he was about to run out of air and pass out, the John Kent was able to pound on the walls of his prison uh, that was underground on this planet and create vibrations, even though uh, it was soundproof. He created vibrations. Superman rescues him. Uh, the the woman this alien woman who took advantage of um of uh, uh john kent giselle or whatever her name is gliana 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 that's who it is um yeah she flees she gets away because she unleashes these robots on her, her own citizens uh, clearly just a terrible person but she's being instructed by somebody that we don't know who it is through, through this like piece of technology this little floating ball um her parents even mention it, that she's been uh, brainwashed or persuaded or whatever. So uh, we get a glimpse of this person. It appears to be a female, but we, we don't get a, a really a, a detailed enough look to really know who it is, uh, who's calling the shots. But whoever it is also does grab Doombreaker and teleport teleports Doombreaker off of Earth onto the ship that Gliana is using to flee her home planet. And there's definitely hints uh, that Gleana is going to be back with Doombreaker as her soldier to cause more problems. Um, I mean, it, it, Dan Drogon has created an interesting character in Gleana and that, that she's not likable at all by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, she's young. She's been influenced by whoever this other person is. So is there a possibility for redemption down the line? I suppose there is. Um but she's not like this out and out, like mushed ass twirling villain. Like the overriding sense I get of her is she's just, you know, not very intelligent. She's not very smart. She lets herself be manipulated and have her strings pulled, but she's not a good person either. I mean, she does this all in the, in the name of ambition, right? Like, so she has some negative personality traits that are, that enable this. So, but, but those negative personality traits don't rise to the level of her being out and out evil, you know, somebody like a Mongol or what have you. So she's an interesting character that has some potential. Um, I think you and I both are sort of a little disappointed in Doombreaker. He's so derivative from Doomsday and I'm kind of over Doomsday at this point. You want to talk about a two-dimensional villain, right? Doomsday is as two-dimensional as they get. Um, But I do appreciate the fact that. Dan Juergens writes the dynamic, the family dynamics between Clark and Lewis and John Kent, maybe better than anybody. And it's great to see John Kent as a young kid. Um, It does say at the end of the story, end. So I don't expect there to be more of this uh, era of Superman in action comics going forward, but who knows? Uh, Again, with the way Gliana flees and the Doombreaker or whatever, the, Story has definitely been left open-ended to add more to this. So I guess we'll see. What did you think of the uh, second story?
1: I really liked it. Mm. And it it just plants seeds because, you know, we're going to be seeing Gliana at some point in the present day and probably uh, have, having an adventure with a grown-up John Kent, uh, who unbeknownst to her has been aged up. And it's going to be really interesting to see Gliana and John Kent meet up again in, in some sort of future future altercation or battle as the case might be and i'm i'm really curious to see what happens and and of course with doombreaker now being in the hands of this unknown villain this unknown uh, i guess partner or a uh, mentor of gliana who mentored gliana to try to take over this world but gliana according to this person didn't do everything that she was supposed to, and that's why she failed, and now also has Doombreaker. It it's interesting and frankly it makes Doombreaker more interesting too. Get Doombreaker off the planet, get him elsewhere, because we already have Doomsday who taking over hell. Let's get Doombreaker off planet, make him make him make Doombreaker more of an intergalactic villain, uh partnered with other Galactic villains for John Kent. You know, Superman has his Doomsday in Hell, let John Kent have his Doombreaker uh, and Gliana and his own Rogues Gallery originating from this particular story moving forward. I think it works very well. This is a really nice story. This would be a nice be a nice collection. I hope DC collects this, this whole story, this whole Gliana saga as as a one in one issue. Or a nice trade, I would I would pick it up, maybe even as a nice little hardcover. But that's probably asking too much. But I I really enjoyed it, and I like the art as well. I lovely weeks in the art, and of course I I just I miss I miss that interaction of of a of a younger John of a younger John Kent interacting with his parents and continuously screwing up and having to be saved by his dad. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was definitely my my favorite. Uh, Actually, I can't even say it's my favorite of the issue because PKJ did such a good job. It's tied with PKJ, so this this entire issue is really damn good. Definitely uh, on it's in the running for pick of the week. I haven't decided yet.
0: Yeah, I would say I'd be surprised if they don't collect this because uh, so many yeah. people love that Lois and Clark, uh, um, Dan Juergens run. So
1: yeah.
0: Uh, all right, last story by uh, Magdalene Visaggio. With Matthew Clark as the artist, Matt Herms on Colors, Rob Lee on Letters. It's a Superboy story. Superboy struggling with his identity. Um, Talking to Ma Kent, talking to Miss Martian. And again, just kind of struggling. Like, you know, I'm always going to be Superboy. I'll never be Superman. Who am I? What's my purpose? Whatever. This feels a little out of place with what we just got. Uh, with Kenny Porter's <laughs> yeah, uh, does. Superboy, Superboy Man of Tomorrow.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: Didn't he He just, like, learn? Didn't he just go through and have this identity crisis and kind of resolve this? <laughs> I, if I had to guess, this was probably written before the end of that. So, and again, with the two-month delay, this is coming out at a, at a bad time. Um, but this references Superman Man of Tomorrow. So... I don't know. This just feels like DC doesn't know what the hell to do with John, uh, with Connor Kent, rather. Um, so I, I I don't know. I don't know what to think. But I, I mean, this is just the beginning of the story. We've got more to come uh, on the last page. John's texting with somebody who says usual place. Yeah, be right there. So I guess we'll see. We're, we're told Superboy's adventures continue the pages of Superman and then the new Speed Force number one. So we'll have to see how it plays out. But. It seemed really really strange. Um I you know, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> so uh it was a lot of angst. What'd you think?
1: Yeah, yeah. W- why does why does he, he have his fingers dipped in pink paint at the end? He's laying on bed and he's I, got his I, finger I, what is that?
0: I don't know. I don't know why. He what I the mean hell? there's a couple of, yeah,
1: there's um he I don't know. I mean, I thought, yeah. I thought, was he using it, put it for his hair, but or, but that, no, he's that's not how you dye. Yeah, your he hair. colored his hair.
0: He colored his hair earlier in the issue. Yeah, but um, why? But again, his it was fingers like, are, Yeah, he's he he's got. So I think he colored his hair earlier in the issue, right? So if yeah. you look throughout the issue, his he has that pink on his fingers. Why he has that. Because right. he used that paint to to oh. put color in his hair.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, I, I guess I and guess he so, has to do that because he can't use dye because he's got super hair or something, or. I, yeah, apparently, but it
0: that doesn't explain why he still has the bowl of paint from <laughs> on the bed <laughs> on in the bed. final. Like maybe he's gonna put more paint in his hair. Like I don't.
1: Yeah, and why is he wearing pink? You know, even his shorts with the with the with the heart, pink hearts, boxer shorts. I don't know, man. I think he's confused with more than one identity. But uh, (laughs) come on, man, man up there, uh, John. What the hell? or connor but anyways uh no what did i think i actually i'm i actually i'm glad he's getting i'm glad he's getting lucky i'm glad uh you know miss martian hey she's a hot you know i'm glad he's getting some good for him i i actually thought that was an interesting pairing why not he's more of a a galactic space space spacefaring hero i think that was what i like what Kenny Porter took him out into space, made him have his adventure. In my head Canon I can kind of reconcile the two stories, saying, "Well, he came back from space, and he, yeah, he maybe he found himself a little bit in space, and but he's still." He still has got some residual issues there, and uh, but at least he's you know he's getting rid of some stress. He's you know he's got a good looking girlfriend who can shape shift into whatever the hell he wants. I mean, hey, he can have some fun, and that's what he's doing. But in the meantime, um, you know, I thought he was a little bit of a jerk to her. She uh, she doesn't he she wanted to know what was bothering him, and she said, "Well, he's he Well, he 'Well, you're a mind reader. Why don't you just Megan? Why don't you just use your." read my mind. She goes, well, I don't do that unless I have consent. And she gives him consent. He gives her consent to read his mind. She enters his mind and then he gets angry at her, tells her to basically F off. And uh, so he was kind of a jerk. So he's got some issues that he's going through, but, but Hey, um, you know, this is in keeping with somebody who's maybe going a little bit nuts. After all, I always, uh, what's that cliche? If a woman has purple Pink or green hair—they—they have mental health issues. That maybe that applies to uh, to Superboy as well now, uh, but that's an unfair cliché thing for me to say.
0: I don't know what your hatred of colored hair is. We oh, know I, you I, hated. Well, first of all, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, in the and now, now, I've never heard anything about if women have pink, purple, or blue hair. They have you, pink. Uh,
1: never. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, just notice it. Just notice it from now on. Just when you're when you're out and about, walking down the street, anybody with just just watch them for five minutes, and then they'll they'll do something out of read. the ordinary. I, no,
0: I, no, I know people that have th- those crazy colored hair. There's nothing Ooh. wrong with them, other than they just like to be different or whatever. I know many, yeah. many people that color, color their hair yeah. many different colors, Yeah. especially no, I, young people. I, I
1: did whatever. say, I did say it's, I did say it's a cliche. I, I, I'm having okay. fun with it. I'm having fun with it, and I, and I make fun yeah. of Jane Nakamura's pink hair, right? Yeah, there you but, go. But uh, you know, so it is a. But I'm just saying, it is a, it is, it is uh, a yeah. unfair stereotype, but a stereotype it is. But uh, in any event, I, I don't see. Uh, I don't see myself or anybody, you know, dipping their hands into pink paint to 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 flare their hair back out of some in, being inspired by Superboy in this. You issue. know what? I would be
0: over fucking joyed to have pink hair. I would be overjoyed <laughs> if I had hair. If somebody told me, okay, you can have instead of being bald, you can have hair, but it has to be pink. I would take that in a heartbeat. Be careful. 100%. Go get a go. Put a pink wig on your head, and you might change your no, mind. No, 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 no! It has to be my real hair. It's not <laughs> worth it if it's a wig. But I would take pink hair versus no hair. Yeah. Well. Uh, all right. Let's move on. Enough talking about hair. Uh, Penguin number two. Tom King is the writer. <laughs> Raphael Torre on art. Marcelo Maiello on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, now as opposed to. Flash. This truly is a simple issue. <laughs> can describe this very quickly. It's the return of the Help, the Help who we previously saw in Batman Killing Time. I love him as a character. Obviously, that Batman Killing Time was set in the set Batman's second year of his career, so this is set in modern times. Help is very much older now. He's 92. He wants to be retired. He says as much. Penguin comes asking for, hey, I need help. Uh, I'm going to go back to Gotham and try to you know, get my position back. The help's like, nope, not going to happen. I'm retired. And Penguin doesn't take no for an answer, manages to drug the help, and then kills all 28 people that work in the help's mansion. Gardeners, chef, chauffeur, personal trainer, doctor, everybody. Kills everybody. Butler, everybody. Um, So there's a couple of things here that I – didn't care for first of all i get that the penguin had to bribe the chef who ends up getting killed anyway um to poison the help and he the penguin does a couple of things to kind of manipulate the help the help was established by tom king as like this guy who could fight again a a batman only second year batman but could fight they could best batman uh batman in combat in hand-to-hand combat Mm -hmm. the help is like legit legit and and i just don't like if i just take the penguin from what i know of him and i take the help as he was in killing time i would 100 times out of 100 bet on the help against the penguin so it didn't really it didn't it lacked a ring of truth verisimilitude to use your word to have the penguin uh basically fool the help like the help should know the penguin's going to be up to some machinations and, and not going to accept the help's refusal to to join forces with in order to work for him basically so that that just didn't it didn't really ring true for me but that's kind of true of this whole penguin series i just don't see the penguin as any sort of formidable villain at all to me the penguin's kind of a joke like so many much like the power creep has happened with batman the power creep has happened with his villains as well, right? Uh, and you kind of have to expect it if Batman gets better and harder to beat, then you have to level up his villains as well to make them still be a threat. Mm-hmm. So we saw that happen in Batman Year 0 with the Riddler cuz the Riddler was kind of a joke previously before, you know, you go back and read 60s, 70s, 80s stories with the Riddler and he's just telling riddles and ha 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 whatever. And you know, he's gone from that to, you know, the Riddler that we have in Batman One Bad Day where He's, like, smarter than Batman. Um, so they've definitely leveled up the Riddler in recent years. Joker, you know, is the Joker and whatever. Um, I just don't buy it with the Penguin. It just doesn't, It just doesn't feel accurate. The Penguin is just kind of this dumpy old crime boss who has a sadistic streak, so people fear him. But in terms of being able to, like, manipulate and be this puppet master... I mean, I get it, right? Like we talked about this back during the Mariko Tamaki Detective Comics run, you know, with uh, with Worth and what have you. With, uh, we mentioned back then that when the Penguin kind of got off the sidelines and, and quit just making money um, at the Iceberg Lounge and wanted to kind of get back into getting his hands dirty. It, we said back then it seemed like DC was trying to level the Penguin up um and yeah that that is what this is like make no mistake about it when you put tom Pe- tom king on the penguin it's because you want to level him up you want to make him seem like a threat uh and as much as i love tom king i just and, and again a very technically well done comic fantastic art great color work to set the mood i'm just never going to buy the penguin as a, a real legitimate threat you know to me to me swap it swap it have the help become you you do you need another like super uh, scary Batman villain then it should be the help because he's badass he's badass in a way that I'll never accept the penguin's badass so anyway that's just my own personal thing again in in terms of the story itself yeah it's well done it's well done it's well paced it's great art so what are your thoughts
1: i I I come at it differently than you. I have always thought of the Penguin as someone who has to be badass and must be badass, but for some reason has never been portrayed as badass. And I appreciate Tom King finally coming along and being a writer that says this is the way t- Penguin ought to be written. And he wrote he writes him that way. That's why I loved I love Penguin Issue One, and I and I, I love this Penguin Issue Two, and but. I am in the minority on that. It just my uh, again. I mean, listening, I getting a feel for every a lot of people's reactions to issue one. Uh, a lot of people felt that you know the penguin would not do that. The penguin isn't that powerful. Isn't that you know doesn't have that much agency or gravitas, et cetera, et cetera. I and I thought, you know, I, I thought it worked. I think the penguin needs to be. The penguin cannot, could not possibly have survived as long as he as, as in, in Gotham as a, as a mobster if he didn't have some some power, some influence. And what I think this issue does that really works for me and the way that I chose to see it, and straight up, I got to confess, upon my initial read, part of me was thinking there's no way that the help is going to tolerate this from the Penguin. But it, what becomes apparent, I think, as you, as you get through the issue, and the only way that you can interpret this, if you are going to be inclined to like this story or even accept it, uh, is that the Penguin is very, very good at reading people. He's very good at it. I'm pretty sure Amanda Waller knows that. I think uh, uh, that, that, that detective from the first issue knows that. I think the Batman knows that. The Penguin is very good at reading people. And he knows that the help, the help here is, he reads the help as being depressed. The help doesn't want to retire, yet he's retired. And he's got all these servants. And while it does sound a little bit forced and cliche at the end, when the Penguin says to the help, you have all these servants. I killed all your servants because you're not someone who should have servants. You're the help. In other words, it's your job to serve. That's what you've done your entire life. You're the best of what you do. You're the best. You're the you're you're amazing. You're you're the best at fighting. You're the you're super intelligent. And 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 you're you're going to sit here and you're going to you are going to retire when you're still in your prime. Yes, he's ninety two years old. He retired and he was eighty five years old. The help, but he's amazing. He's incredible. And the penguin is. And I got the impression that the help was letting penguin. The help clearly could could kill the penguin at any time. But the help, the help was psychologically broken down and then realized that, God damn, the penguin's right. I'm what am I doing here? And I think that, that that was part of his motivation. It sort of snapped him out of it and that the help decided to embrace who he really was and clearly didn't have much issue, didn't really have much affection, that much affection for his staff. And he just basically leaves with the penguin at the end. And I think the Penguin ultimately understood that. And uh, at least that's how, it's pretty much how you have to interpret that. Now, here's where a lot of people have accused Tom King of writing characters out of character. The help is Tom King's character. So it's kind of hard to accuse Tom King of writing the help out of character. Although it's hard not to, it's hard to imagine that the help would be that powerful and then suddenly become that pathetic when the Penguin comes along. Unless, of course, the penguin had understood him and read him, and the help really was yearning to get back into the game, and I think the help really was yearning to get out of that boring life where he was just hunting ducks and walking around so, his big estate. What so that? you're saying?
0: So you're saying that the help, when he was saying, "I want to retire," "I want to be retired," "I want to blah blah,", blah. so he was just trying. He was saying that, trying to convince himself that that's what he really wanted, but what he what he truly, yeah. what was truly in his heart yeah. was to be, be involved. Okay. I I, well, I, no,
1: I, mean, buy that. I mean, that's the only way that I'm, that's my headcanon. That's the only way I can justify why the help would, would, would not just kill the penguin at the end, because yeah. clearly, yeah. clearly the penguin, that's the only interpretation I can think of in terms of what Tom King wants the reader to get, get out of it. I'm not saying it worked. I can totally see your point of view because I, I about, it doesn't really work, but I'm thinking like, well, you know, I like, Let's face it Tom King needs the penguin to have a very competent right-hand man and the help is precisely that the help is somebody that can hold his own against Lady Shiva and against and against uh, even he even talked about meeting a young Oliver Queen and and getting a young Oliver Queen to choose a bow and arrow over a gun I mean so he's really propped up the help so this gives the help gives the penguin more gravitas and so the penguin having a maybe a psychological edge over the helper, really understanding him on that base level i think is what tom king was going at like but i look i can see that it doesn't work but i think it it's the only way to interpret this story so that it, it has any degree of uh verisimilitude to use that word again
0: <laughs> yeah fair enough all right. Well, let's move on. Curious with what your thoughts are on this one. Power Girl Number 1, written by Leah <laughs> Williams. Pencils by Eduardo Panseca, Inks by Julio Ferreira. Colors by Ram- Ramulo Fajardo Jr. Letters by Becca Carey. Gorgeous, gorgeous main cover by Gary Frank. Absolutely yeah. love it. I wish Gary Frank had tra- – as much as I love Eduardo Penseca, although I do prefer his line work to be colored by um, Antonio Fabella. Uh, but yeah, Edward Penseca's art is fantastic, but man – that that Gary Frank Gary Frank drawing power girls so good gorgeous uh, anyway yeah what are your thoughts on this issue
1: uh well straight up i like this issue i <laughs> i was pleasantly surprised I, I i was shocked i i was actually i what i like what writer lay williams did here is that i'm so glad she's moving away from the tel, 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 telepathy nonsense and telepathic powers and and she's she's actually creating a grounding a story for for power girl that that is uh, that we has to do with her kryptonian origins her earth 2 kryptonian origins and what this what this opening issue does is it shows a, a gorgeous page now, Paige at this gala, and she's 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 dressed up. She looks amazing, and uh, <laughs> and she's there. Uh, she's there to give a speech and to talk about uh, to talk about. Well, I mean, she's actually fairly good with computers and technology, and she's she's actually utilizing that. I mean, she's actually going back into what she was. What r- r- people. Uh, need to remember or ought to remember that uh, Karen, when she was Karen Starr, she was a billionaire. Now she gave away her billions and and then ultimately went off to Earth too. But then came back, so she's she does have a lot of. Uh, Lee Williams seems to be embracing the fact that she does seem to have some power, some economic uh, 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 knowledge here, and she is she's. I don't know if she's rich, but clearly she knows. Uh, Paige does have a background in computer tech, and she seems to. She seems to have an a, you know, a business acumen of some kind. And what I like, what in this issue is that it shows her using that, and it shows her that she's meeting new people at a gala. She's being approached, and and ultimately she ends up being, she does end up being attacked, and ultimately by someone who is. Um, well, it's related to – I forget uh, – I'm sorry. I forget his name. His, his name eludes me. Uh, Amalek. Amalek. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, – yeah. In, in any event, it uh, – to cut to the chase, while she manages to defeat Amalek, it becomes quite clear that something else is afoot. And then Superman shows up at the end and tells her that there is this virus that's going around and it's Kryptonian in origin. And it's Kryptonian in origin – in a way that it that they it's kryptonian it's earth 2 kryptonian it's it's from her krypton power girl's krypton which is impossible because she's a multiversal anomaly how can it be from power girl's krypton if power girl is one of these multiversal anomaly along with the huntress and per degaton that was established in justice society so that's interesting to me and i like the fact that lay williams is bringing in that uniqueness to power girl is focusing on that origin and, and is focus the, the original origin, and I like that. And 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 she's got her own independence, and she's got her own business, and she's smart and she's intelligent. And I like the fact that we don't see a lot of Omen in here. She, this is Power Girl on her own. She's got her own friends. She's got her own business, and she she's not she's less pathetic. Frankly, I really <laughs> I, I really did not like what Leigh Williams did to her in those opening issues of Action Comics. I thought it was Awful, awful. But this is way better. I find I'm way more invested in this. I'm more interested in where this might go. And uh, Edward Pansico's art also is so much better than uh, Marguerite Sauvage. Sauvage's art in my mind. It's more of the D.C. House style in my mind. It's amazing. I love the art. Uh, Power Girl is sexy. She's gorgeous. And uh, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where the story is going to go, but I like this. I like Leigh Williams, how she... How she scripted Power Girl here. She's no nonsense. She kicks ass. She's uh not afraid to get her hands dirty. I mean, she's wearing, I mean, in this one issue, she's wearing this gorgeous, you know, she's the woman in red, this gorgeous woman in red in the opening pages, w- w- looking like a sexy librarian with the glasses. My God. And then she ends up kicking ass in the middle of the store. You know, then she gives a speech to the crowd. She's like a she's like a successful, gorgeous woman successful woman in red and then at the end she's a kick-ass power girl and um, again sexy as hell and I like the suit I like the breasts I like the I mean I, I, this caters to the Purian fanboy in me but it's respectful to the character and hey <laughs> I, I enjoyed this I, I had a lot of fun with this and man that that cover a kudos to DC for finally getting its I, they got a cover A correct. You got the right artist on cover A, and uh, I don't know. I I enjoyed this issue, and uh, yeah, this is. They, they should have started off with this uh, because I think I think the way it started off in Action Comics with the Power Girl was a huge turnoff. I think it pushed a lot of people away. But this is way better, in my in my opinion. But so. You, what do you think? <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, I enjoyed it too. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as you. I th- I th- I'm reserving judgment. I'm a big fan of Leah Williams, but I, I do have like I get what DC's trying to do, right? Like her name is Kara Zor-el, right? That's the same name as Supergirl, Kara Zor-el. But this Kara zor is her last name is Z-o-r dash L, and Supergirl is Z-o-r dash E-l power girls is basically the earth two version of supergirl but you know now she's for reasons on you know earth prime <laughs> it's, even, it's even mentioned so yeah you can understand and the whole negative con- connotation to karen you know previously her name was karen star and karen's you know not a good name to have right now and so hey let's let's you know give her a new identity or whatever and and in that way, you're trying to make it kind of new reader friendly and, and what have you. And, it, and you want it to work on that level so people feel like they're in at the beginning. And so as sort of a byproduct of that and the sense you get in the story is this is a very young character, right? Like when Superman is giving her a bad time because you mentioned, uh, you know, Leah Williams getting away from the ideas of her telepathy, whatever. She still has some extra powers she hasn't seen before. She even uses them here when she – Takes a bomb to the Marianas Trench, and Superman's like, "Why didn't you teleport up into space? Or right? you, you, you know, I got to go to the Atlanteans and convince them that this is an act of war and what have you." And that makes sense when you hear Superman say that, and then Power Girl sort of freaks out on him, like, "I, I panicked." Like that's that's so such a like young, inexperienced hero thing to do, right? For her to do that in the first place, and then the way that she reacts. Then you compare that against. The way that she acts and the way that she talks, where we saw her most recently in Justice Society with Jeff Johns writing her and not calling her Paige, still calling her Karen. It's like two completely different characters, completely different characters. I like the old school power girl. I, I appreciated her. But I again, I understand why DC may be doing this why they want to kind of you know, reestablish her because yeah, it can be confusing. She, it is really easy to get her mixed up with Supergirl. And so call her page, uh, you know, give her a little bit of a different personality, different powers and that sort of thing. And, and maybe, you know, down the line, people will not get her mixed up so much uh, with Supergirl. So I can understand what, what they're doing. I appreciate what they're doing. I like the Eduardo Penseca art as well. Um, but it is, it, it will take some getting used to, right. It's just to change a character, a character that's been around for as long. Power Girl has been around for decades, like almost 50 years. And to be changing her now, it just, it feels weird. There's part of me that doesn't like it. Uh, but it's not just change for change sake. I mean, they do have, as I said, good reasons for doing it. So hopefully it takes, and uh, I do like kind of the tone, uh, of her personality and the way she talks in the hands of Leah Williams. But again, there is that feeling that she's a little younger than she actually is. So I don't know how they really reconcile that. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, all right. Up next, we have unstoppable doom patrol. Number six, the penultimate issue. Part one is this burning. Dennis Culver is the writer. Chris Burnham is the artist. Brian Reber on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. Uh, yeah, we get a new version basically of General Immortus here. Looks uh, fantastic. What do you think of this?
1: Uh, I've been enjoying this Doom Patrol series, and uh, yeah, it, it's funny. I've been uh, I've got uh, looking at, l- reading reviews of this. The, the reviews are are somewhat mixed. Uh, I I fall on the side that I've been enjoying this. I actually I find, even though I'm not a Doom Patrol expert by any stretch, I actually, I'm having a lot of fun with this. Uh, And, and, and this issue, I mean, it was extended. I think it was originally six issues. It was extended for a seventh issue. This is the sixth issue, the seventh issue. Uh, And writer Dennis Culver, he is, he sort of, he's taken bits and pieces from different iterations and, and different storylines of Doom Patrol. And he is cramming a lot into seven issues. In fact, that is a potential criticism because I think it might it might lose some people. For me, even though I don't re- necessarily know exactly what's going on in this particular issue, this one, this this issue in particular, while a lot happened, I do have some questions because I don't know a lot about this this Dorothy that shows up at the end and and exactly what's going on. And there's a couple of new characters that show themselves that I I have a feeling aren't new at all. Like there's this. Uh, 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 this new character called, or this character, uh, oh, Kipling, uh, Kipling, and 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 some of these other characters. I, I don't know a lot about even uh, the Flex Force here. Uh, the the issue starts off with with the the new with the Doom Patrol training the some of the trainees sort of like the X-Men Danger Room, and it's the Flex Force, Flex Mentalo has his group, uh, which are going to be fighting... you know, Starbro and Squonk and Roxy Centauri and Silo Simon and AVM Animal Vegetable Mineral Girl take on take on the Doom Patrol, and they they're playing a, a capture the flag in like a Doom Patrol setting, uh, while uh, Crazy Jane and Niles Calder watch this take place. And Niles Calder, the the former chief, says to Crazy Jane, you know, he says, you know what, I'm I I I think you're doing a good job, and sort of like they they're not fighting or arguing anymore, so Niles Cal- Calder seems to be more on page and accepting of what Crazy Jane, who's the new chief of the Doom Patrol, is doing. Uh, but then, out of the blue, there's, they're attacked. The headquarters of Doom Patrol is attacked by uh, General Immortus and, and Mala, and uh, they want to resurrect Dorothy. Their entire, their entire goal is to resurrect Dorothy, who is the former member of the Doom Patrol and used to be involved with Robot Man and Dorothy had some strange power sets herself, which i'm not really sure and At the end of the issue at the end of the issue they she ends up being uh generally mortis takes some sort of wax serum and resur- and then fall drinks it and then falls into the falls into the to the the burial site where Dorothy is into the coffin and then he he's resurrected and and rises and he becomes the eternal flame. And so, I mean, it's crazy. It's so, it's so nuts. We, uh, we, we we saw all these other crazy characters when generally Mortis's crew attacked the doom patrol. There was this one character called the quiz that I think it's my, it's my favorite new character. I didn't know what this, this is the first time I've ever seen this character, the quiz. Maybe it's old and maybe it's an old established character. It's new to me, but this quiz character looks crazy. And the 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 power set that this quiz has and i had to figure this out as i was reading it but she will use a superpower on you but the minute you guess correctly what superpower the quiz is using against you she loses the superpower <laughs> so so she uses invisibility against you and you guess invisibility she can't use that power on you anymore so it's really weird and in this case she was using uh she was using uh Oh, I, I I forget what what it was. She was using the power set of, uh, um, oh, imposter syndrome. She she was causing everybody to have to doubt themselves, and and one of the, and one of the uh, do patrol members guessed it's imposter syndrome. anyways, just crazy. Crazy stuff. And all these characters are crazy. And and the fight scenes, the choreography of the fight scenes is really well done. And Chris Burnham is really challenged artistically on this and he, and he's well up to the task. I love the fight scenes here. Just the, the craziness of it all. These are obscenely ridiculous-looking characters. I mean, it is the Doom Patrol. The only thing more ridiculous-looking than the Doom Patrol themselves are the the new recruits or the new members and the bad guys. And getting all this on the page while Crazy Jane and Niles called her look on and they're getting involved in all this while – while, you know, Gen- General Mortis wants to, you know, rebirth himself by taking a serum and combining himself with the body of Dorothy, who has a power set that I'm not not sure on because I'm not a longtime Doom Patrol reader. In any event, this is the type of story that when I read it, what am I going to do after I'm done reviewing this when I got time this week? I'm going to Google Dorothy Doom Patrol. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at it because Dennis Culver has me curious. And this is the stuff that I I enjoy this. I enjoy this type of story. I'm having so much fun with this story. I got a lot of questions. I don't know exactly what's going on. But I had fun with this. And I've been having fun with this from the beginning. And that's why I'm invested in it. And I love the art. And I and kudos to Dennis Culver. So what about yourself? Yeah. So I, I thought that this was Lazarus
0: Resin because – well, maybe uh, you're right. Of course, it is. <laughs> well, I mean, Hugen, he, Hugen does say he calls it he wax. He calls it well. Th- at first, I mean, when we first see so, so we get that ter- terrible. Uh, they're digging up Dorothy, so she's there, right? Her her skeleton, her remains are next to the the grave that uh, Monsher Mala has driven. And Hugan is this like voodoo priest guy, um, and so. Clearly, I guess having Dorothy's. So Dorothy, she had the ability to uh, make imaginary creatures become real. Um, Dorothy Spinner's her name, but in the I think in the Doom Patrol TV show, which I haven't read, she's actually the daughter of Niles Calder, which isn't the case in the regular Doom Patrol. She's a member of Doom Patrol. So with her there, I guess just having her body there has some remnants of the power, and then. Hungin there with his you know voodoo abilities and we know they're all about the undead and then he yeah hoon says drink the wax so i mean wax resin they're kind of close together uh so i'm assuming it's like but he drinks it then he then he falls you know he kind of melts and then falls into that grave dorothy's grave so maybe her grave itself has some of her powers like bring imaginary people life and then he, he pops up and he calls himself the eternal flame and he's he, he sort of looks like this skeleton that's been dipped in wax. He looks really cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, the eternal flame. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, there's candles floating around him. Like, uh, so what are, what are his powers going to be? Because as General Mortis, he didn't really have any, but he's very frail uh, physically, you know, not powerful physically at all. Just a very great uh, tactician. Um, but yeah, he has been pushing around in a wheelchair, like very frail. Um, so, yeah, interesting look at him and interesting way to use Dorothy. So we'll see how that all that all plays out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when I talked to Dennis at San Diego Comic-Con, he mentioned how much he really wanted to incorporate all the eras of Doom Patrol. And he's certainly doing that with all these different Doom Patrol characters that show up. Again, I haven't read a lot of it. <clears throat> Dorothy, actually, it's interesting. She showed up in the Paul Kupperberg Doom Patrol, that 1987 series. That's the one that I know that I actually collected. I Didn't read any Doom Patrol from before or since. It's gotten you know way weird with the, what Grant Morrison did and Rachel Pollack did and Gerard Way and all those different people since then. When I read it, it was way more kind of traditional mainstream DC before it went vertigo and got all crazy and weird. Uh, but Culver's doing a fantastic job. Dennis Culver's doing a fantastic job of marrying all those eras together. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not always familiar. I had to look up Dorothy. I remembered her briefly from what, uh, you know, what I read back then, but yeah, it's not a hundred, it's a lot, of, a lot of things are implied here with how General Mortis has transformed into this eternal flame, but who knows, I'm going to be sad to see this end. I can't believe there's only one more issue because I, I want more. This is so fun. Chris Burnham's art, the, just his style suits the kind of weirdness and fun and action and fast pace of this really, really well also. And the color work is done very, very well. It really suits the, the book as well. So, yeah, I mean, this is just a book that the entire creative team, they just gel so well together. Again, I just, I don't, I don't want it to end. It's been so great. And that image of uh, the eternal flame at, you know, at the end, is just, it's just fantastic. I don't know how anybody <laughs> sees that and doesn't, you know, want to know more about that character and more about what's going on. So yeah, Brian Reber's on the colors I'll call out his name again, because he does such a fantastic job. Uh, you know, you you use this word in describing this book, and it is the best word to use it uh, to describe. And I think I used it when I was talking to Dennis as well. It's just so much fun. It's just fun. You 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 read the book, you have a smile on your face. It's you may not always understand what's going on in terms of all these all these characters, unless you know, unless you have a a, a long history with Doom Patrol. And then more power to you because you're probably getting even more out of it than Rocky and I are. Um, but no matter what. It's fun. It's it, the dialogue is fun. Uh, seeing these new characters, new iterations, new versions is fun. Like, yeah, the, the idea. I don't. I don't know if this if this villain uh, had, the quiz has shown up before or not. But yeah. what, what a fantastic what a fantastic idea! They have all the superpowers until you name one of them, and then they, that's taken away. That's just so good. That's again, it's so fun. It's so fun. And you can tell the creative team is having fun. So, man, this book is just, I don't want it to go away. I really don't. It it is just so good. Uh, All right. On to the last book we're going to talk about in detail today. It's Wildcats number 11, the penultimate issue. It's coming to an end with issue 12. So this is issue 11, Endgame, written by Matthew Rosenberg, Stephen Segovia, Danny Kim, and Tom Dernick are the artists. Elmer Santos on colors and Fern Delgado on letters. What do you think of this next to last issue? I
1: really – well, I enjoy this issue primarily because I like to see I, – I really thought finally uh, Grifter and Zealot got together. <laughs> That's why I liked it. And uh, yeah, I mean it's, it's, it's so wonderful to see, uh, you know – two people, two heterosexuals getting it on in a comic book. It's so rare nowadays. Uh, <laughs> I got to enjoy it while it lasts cause until, before one of them turns gay. But uh, <laughs> but in any event, okay, that, that was a bad joke, but I had to throw that in. But look, uh, Zealot and Grifter were, were seen having sex in the in the first issue of Birds of Prey. Remember when uh, Black Canary recruited Zealot in the first issue? Uh, she was with Grifter. And this, I, I figured, I don't know if, in continuity wise, where this fits, but this was a long time coming because in the in the previous, I mean, this is the eleventh issue. There's only one issue left after this. In uh, Grifter was in another timeline where he where he ended up, you know, confronting and having a pretty unfortunate dysfunctional altercation with another version of Selit in another timeline, <laughs> who ended up being killed. And and in this one, uh, you know, there it, it be. It was it actually surprised me that Matthew Rosenberg actually went there because I thought this was going to be like a moonlighting thing where he'd continue to perpetuate the idea that will they or won't they? Yeah, guess what? They won't. You know, will they or won't they? Tease, tease, tease. They won't. But no, they do. They get it on. And what's even more hilarious is that as they're getting it on <laughs> – you got the other character with eavesdropping on their on on their lovemaking, wanting to hoping that she's going to be invited in. She's going to jump in and for for a threesome, and uh, this is something that you know you can only get away with in a wildcat's book. Uh, you know, gone are the days, of course, of the Comics Code Authority, and thank God because this would not this would not pass the Comics Code Authority muster. But I thought it was that was my my favorite part of the issue. Now, uh, as for the rest of it, uh, the, the rest of the issue itself. Well, uh, the Justice League is still looking to looking to sort of shut down what the Wildcats are doing or what they think the Seven Soldiers are doing and what they think Jason uh, – I think it's Jason Lynch – I'm getting that wrong – is doing. So there's uh, – frankly, I'm a little bit confused as to what exactly is going on. And who they're fighting at the end here. But ultimately, the the, the attempt to take over Wildcats has been unsuccessful. And that's going to lead to the altercation. we're going to get the final issue at the end. Because uh, 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 Drifter, Zealot, and uh, the rest of the Wildcats are pulled into a battle. Which ultimately ends up being a trap where they're going to be taking on, uh, I guess, the... Yeah, the Other Wildcats team, or are those the Seven Soldiers? Seven but, Soldiers, yeah, yeah, the Seven Soldiers. So, uh, th- this issue, this series has been too long, it's taken too long to get here, but I it, it does have its moments. And Matthew Rosenberg, I do enjoy his dialogue for the most part, and uh, that's the only th- that that's what's kind of kept me in- invested most of the time is is his. Is, his humor, particularly with Grifter, I thought it's worked. It's worked reasonably well most of the time, and yeah. So I had my I had I had fun with it. So what about you?
0: Yeah, I thought, I thought you were going to say uh, yeah. I really enjoyed it because it's almost over. Uh, but yeah, I also know you are really going to appreciate the uh, the Grifter Zealot uh, romantic scene, if you will. Them <laughs> hooking up. So yeah, I, I I I agree with you to some extent. I think that this series has meandered a little bit at times, but again, I I go back to it being a very political book and just not knowing enough about Wildcats and enough about some of these characters to really be able to say whether it really landed all the story beats that Matthew Rosenberg wanted it to. I continue to love the, the characterization he gives Grifter and Zealot and Marlowe and a lot of these other characters. Um, but I, yeah, I, I sort of agree with you in that it, I wish it would have been a story that was a little more focused, but then I can, you know, I think about that. I imagine what how that might've been. And then I think maybe it would have been left wanting a little bit more. Now, you know, previous to this, we had the Wild Storm, which was the Warren Ellis take on it, which wasn't necessarily tied into DC continuity. It had some really fantastic art trying to remember the artist that did it. John David. John, John Davis,
1: isn't it? John Davis Hunt.
0: Yeah, yeah. John Davis Hunt. Yeah, fantastic art by John Davis Hunt. That was much more focused and, and kind of more on a standalone. I, I, I think the best Wildcat story, the best Wildstorm story would be maybe a little in between. I think that didn't have quite enough politics in it. Story felt a little bit smaller scale. Uh, and this feels a little bit too big to, to, for the real estate of the pages that we got. Um, so I kind of think w- maybe somewhere in the middle would have been uh, would have been better. But I am enjoying this. It does make me want to know more about Wildstorm, um, you know, more than I already do. And um, I, I think, again, it'll probably read better uh, as a collection. But I think the, the shortcomings of it and the, and the fact that it did sort of meander in there. Are still going to be questions left unanswered. Um, th- that's pro- reading it all in one sitting or you know all together in a collection that, that is going to become a little more apparent I think. So don't have any idea what the sales are on this thing. So whether or not we have more wild storm, I guess we'll have to uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, all right, well that does it for the single issues. There are some collections out this week from DC as well. We've got Tim Drake Robin volume 1. This collects the Megan Fitzmartin series, uh, issues one through six. Uh, We also have Batgirl, year one. Uh, This volume collects the nine-issue miniseries that was uh, written back in the 90s uh, with art by uh, Marcos Martin. It was written by Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty. Um, (laughs) So if you're so inclined to check that out, you can pick that up. Uh, Harley Quinn... Volume 4, Task Force XX. This is the one where they go to the moon and what have you. Uh, So it collects the end of the uh, Stephanie Phillips era, uh, Harley Quinn 18 through 21, and the uh, Harley Quinn 2022 annual. We've got DC vs. Vampires All Out War Part 2 hardcover. So it collects the last three issues of DC vs. Vampires All Out War. That's issues 4 through 6, plus the one-shot DC vs. Vampires Killers. Uh, and then we've got a couple of Golden Age omnibus, or Omnibi, I guess I should say. Volume 1 hardcover, which collects Detective Comics 27, obviously the first appearance of Batman, 27 through 56, and Batman 1 through 7. So that's a reprinting of Golden Age Omnibus number 1. And then there's a Golden Age Omnibus volume 10, which collects Batman's 86, uh, Batman 86 through 100 and Detective Comics 21 through 232. Um, So much, much later in the Golden Age. And then finally, uh, I Am Batman, Volume 3, The Right Question Hardcover, which collects the end of the uh, series written by uh, John Ridley with art by Christian Doucet. That's specifically issues I Am Batman 11 through 18. So those are collections out this week in addition to the uh, vast, vast number of single issues out, 15 books this week. Uh, moment of truth, Rocky. What is your book of the week?
1: Wow, well, my book of the week. Wow. Um, I really enjoyed uh, – I enjoyed The Flash. I enjoyed The Flash. I knew
0: you were going to pick that. I, 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 I did. did.
1: Uh, but you know what? I, I also really enjoyed uh, – I really enjoyed action comics too. Both those stories and action comics were really, really good. But you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and I enjoyed Power Girl. I really enjoyed Power Girl. Jeez, it's a tough one for me because I want to. has come under such heat. He's under such pressure from uh, Jerry, from so many people, and I really think that it deserves some recognition because I, I, I I enjoyed the Flash. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good uh, coming. It's a good story. I want to give it. It's a tie between Power Girl and Flash, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Flash with honorable mention. Uh, I'm going to go with flash here with an honorable mention to uh, lay Williams power girl. Um, and I just got to get my pick of the week here. Here we go. So what about you? Well, mine definitely not the flash. Uh, yeah. I am one of those guys putting a
0: lot of pressure on Cy Spurrier. Yeah. Uh, and I, You know, I'm not, I'm not it's nothing personal. Uh, I just, his writing style. I just don't think suits the flash. And I, I, I don't, I don't appreciate all the high flutin words. I just I think that makes it feel unapproachable. This is a number 1 issue, right? And there's people that are going to be jumping on. This is going to be their first issue of the Flash they've ever purchased. And I think the the art style and again, Mike Deodato is a fantastic artist, huge fan of his work, but for this story, his like the art style that he currently uses with the, you know, breaking of the panels, it just doesn't work. And the story doesn't feel approachable for new readers. So uh, it is not Flash for me. Uh, I'm glad you gave an honorable mention of Power Girl. I'm going to give an honorable mention of Power Girl as well, because I do think that's a very approachable first issue. But my book of the week has got to be Doom Patrol. Uh, just so much fun. Um, just really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I really hope that it continues. I hate to see Hate to see it come to an end, um, but I also thought Batman Beyond was really great as well. So it was uh, the Donna Troy Teen Titans, the Penguin story, uh, yeah. Penguin issue. Yeah, technically, very a very well done comic. So yeah, overall it was, it was a solid week. Solid uh, week, yeah. Yeah, Doom, Doom Patrol for me. So. Uh, all right. Anything else to add before we get out of this marathon? Uh, here?
1: No, no. Uh, <laughs> it was a, it was a big week this week. I'm glad, I'm glad we got through it. And, yeah. uh, yeah. So you got anything coming up? Interviews
0: or, uh, you know, I have a couple of, I was sick last week and I had to postpone a couple of things. So those will be coming up. And then, yeah, I mean, uh, New York Comic Con's coming up as well. I'm not going to be able to make it. Unfortunately, I can't get time off the day job. So that's kind of putting a pin on a lot of stuff I'm doing because a lot of people are going to do that. But, yeah, there'll be some some other interviews coming up real soon. So be sure to check them out. Uh, All right, everybody. Appreciate you joining us. Don't forget, if you're listening to the audio only on the Comic Source Podcast, head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation Point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Ring the notification bell, subscribe, leave some comments. We love to discuss the books in uh, in the comment section. Uh, but if you don't subscribe, you don't ring the notification bell, you won't know when there's new content out and you don't want to miss it. Current, uh, uh, also, if you're checking us out on YouTube, stumbled across us, or you're already a uh, subscriber to the... Comic Boom, don't forget to head to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the Comic Source. Uh, That way you don't miss any of our audio-only content. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us.